Oh, it looks like we're gonna have to complete the fight without weapons. You mean a battle of wits? Close. We fight with jazz. Bring it on, Daddy-o. What's up, everybody, and welcome to Anime Baby, where the jazz man's testifying. This is your host, Bleeding Gums Mikey, and joining me as always is... The crooning coffee sipper, your co-host, Ryan. And welcome back to Summer of Music! Oh yeah, last time we really started to get into the heavy hitters of the summer with the incredible Beck Mongolian Chop Squad. And this time, we keep that trend going as uh, we're gonna take things. Uh, we're gonna take things a little bit more, a little bit more easy, a little bit more smooth, a little bit more cool. As we're taking a look at Kids on the Slope, a show I always felt would be totally up your alley. Yet you actually haven't seen it up until now. It came out in 2012, correct? Yes. I think I was maybe riding the high of Tiger and Bunny still at that time. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> So maybe, yeah, like, I'm even I'm still surprised as to why this slipped my purview. I know, right, because I, I remember actually really telling you about it when I first saw it back in 2014. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what it was. Like, maybe I was just in, like, into different things at the time or something. Or maybe just, like, waiting for the right time. Yeah, maybe waiting for the right time, right mood, you know. I kind of need to be, like, in that, like, these days when it comes to uh, slice-of-life anime. But this one is very special. Yeah, that time is now. So, uh, as always, let's get into a little bit of the background. And there is a lot of background to go into this one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> More than you would think for a slice-of-life anime. Like, as I was uh, putting this together, I was reminded to the uh, little bit of the background I did for uh, last year's uh, Gridman preamble for that episode, and that one was pretty lengthy. So, Kids on the Slope is based on a manga of the same name written by Yuki Kodama. It was published in Monthly Flowers and ran from September 28th, 2007 until July 28th, 2012, with 10 volumes and a total of 90 chapters. 
and uh, Kodama even won a uh, Shoga Kukan Manga Award for the series in 2011. So, uh, yeah, it does have a lot of those uh, accolades, too. So in December 2011, it was announced that the series would get an anime adaptation, and it would be produced by MAPPA. And this was actually their first production as the studio opened in July 2011. Ooh, big moment for them. Back when uh, taking too many projects and overworking their animators was just the twinkle in their eye. Yeah, yeah. So uh, back then, still good. Uh, nowadays, eh, yeah. As uh, the studio was started by uh, Maso Murayama after he left uh, Madhouse, which he had co-founded in 1972. So yeah, Madhouse alum here. And uh, he was the one who actually picked the man who would be the director of Kids on the Slope. It was his personal choice. As uh, this man had spent uh, the prior three years working on projects for Madhouse that uh, ultimately never got off the ground or just uh, never really worked out quite right. Which uh, led Murayama to offer him at this job as uh, something to do, you know, kind of an IOU one. And this man is none other than THE man. The myth. The legend. The one. And. Only. Shinichiro Watanabe. Mr. Cowboy Bebop himself, Samurai Champloo. Oh yeah, just a man who needs no introduction, but I'm gonna give him one anyway. Cause we te yeah, because we have not covered any of his works before on the show. No, a man of his stature in not only just the anime world, but the world of animation and entertainment really just like this big, and we're only just now getting to him. One of my one of my favorite figures in anime. Oh, uh, mine too. As uh, Shinichiro Watanabe, born in Kyoto in May 24th, 1965, kicked off his anime career with Studio Sunrise by uh, supervising episode direction and storyboards for many of their shows. It wouldn't be until 1994 that he would make his directorial debut as the co-director for the update to the original Macross anime, Macross Plus, which is a series that I hear is really good, but I've never checked out. Yeah, like that and many others for me. <laughs> like, it's one of those shows that gets brought up by a lot of our friends who are kind of more veteran anime fans. Right, and we, we just kind of nod our heads and say, yep, one day. Yep, one day, one day. Like, there's a lot of anime out there, I'm sorry. A lot of that. Like, there's a lot of stuff to watch out there. Like, stuff from, like, the 80s and 90s that I'm sure is great, but I don't know. We, we can't get to all of it at once. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Uh, but uh, four years later, after uh, directing Macross Plus, he would go on to direct his first anime, his first solo directorial job. And that is, of course, legendary Cowboy Bebop. And so a legend was born. Like, this series is the one that would put Watanabe on the map, considering the show's wide appeal all over the world. Like, yeah. it, it did better overseas than it did in Japan. Like, honestly, like it's it's not one I've re it's not one I've revisited very much, but it's one it's one of those it's one of those anime that I can almost definitively say is one of my favorite of all time. Like, it's considered the greatest of all time, and with good reason. It's so fantastic and well done, top to bottom. Oh yeah, like a like a masterpiece. Like, like there, there's very little I can say about Cowboy Bebop that's not already been said. Right, like even at its worst, it's still good. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, at the time of this recording, uh, getting set up for a live action adaptation on Netflix. Yes, that is also on the way. Uh, the the most I can say right now is that the costumes look good. Some very high class cosplay there. Yes, absolutely. So we'll have to wait and see how it turns out. I'm hoping for the best. Yeah, I'm curious as well. And uh, after doing the Bebop movie in 2001, he would then work on two short stories for The Animatrix, the uh, Matrix uh, anthology movie. Those would be uh, Kid's Story and Detective Story. 
Have you seen any of those yet? No, like honestly, like the the only the only one I've seen like of that entire series is just the first Matrix film. Mm -hmm. That that is it. I've not watched the sequels. I've not watched the Animatrix. It's just I, I like the first film, but it's it's just it's just not my thing. <laughs> but I do but I do kind of appreciate them. They're fascinating films. And uh, the Wachowski sisters as well are like a fascinating creative duo as well. So I, I would like to I would like to visit those works someday. And also they say the movies are trans as fuck, which I approve. Yes, absolutely. That's cool. <laughs> and so after doing uh, Animatrix, uh, Watanabe would then follow that up in 2004 with the equally legendary Samurai Champloo. Uh, what do you think of Champloo, actually? Uh, honestly, I've only watched about half of it. <laughs> oh. I have not finished it, actually. But I can say it's very good. Yeah, I've, I've seen it all. Yeah, and yeah, it is very good. Bebop's better, but Champloo is like just a hair below it, but still very, very good and very, very cool. It still has all of Watanabe's hallmarks. And plus, Hip Hop Samurai, what's cooler than that? Yeah, that's cool! <laughs> and uh, with both Bebop and Champloo, it's obvious that uh, Watanabe has a thing for great music in his works, like that is just one of his trademarks. And uh, after Champloo, things would be pretty quiet for Watanabe, mostly directing another short story for another anthology film that would be Baby Blue for Genius Party, and being the music supervisor for Sayo Yamamoto's Ichigo and Hachin, so taking those uh, musical talents elsewhere. And that's also another series where I feel like, while he wasn't the director, I feel like Yamamoto does take like a lot of influence from him in like in terms of style, while take, taking some of that and then twisting it and bending it into her own. Mm, I can I can definitely feel that in Michiko and Hachin. Definitely. And also, uh, what we call Fujigamine. Mmm, yep, yep. This leads us to 2012, seven years after the end of Samurai Champloo, where Watanabe would take a seat in the director's chair once again. And for the first time, he's directing an adaptation, as uh, all of his projects up to this point have been original works. I uh, could definitely use more of these days. But uh, yeah, Watanabe wasn't sure about the project at first, because uh, since it was an adaptation, he felt he wouldn't have as much creative freedom. But he changed his tune eh, as soon as he heard that jazz was the main aspect of the series and music being a main, major part of each work, so it's a perfect fit for him. He just perked up like he smelled a Scooby snack. He's just like, I don't know, adaptations. Uh, Would you do it for some jazz music? Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after reading the original uh, Kids on the Slow Manga, actually, he noted that... Uh, while jazz music forms the basis of the story, he was uh, interested in its approach to plot and characterization, and particularly the way they uh, portray emotional distance in the series. And after hearing Watanabe was working on an anime about jazz, his longtime collaborator, uh, Yoko Kano, asked to be involved in the project. And she did the music for uh, Macross Plus and Cowboy Bebop. And she did this even though she wasn't a big fan of jazz. But she really liked working with Watanabe. And that's baffling, too. Doesn't like jazz? Like... And, like, the main theme of Cowboy Bebop <laughs> is a jazz tune. The soundtrack of that series is riddled with jazz. Yeah. And you're telling me you don't like it? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe she was just tired after a long time or something. Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe it was just like an angle of like being tired after so long. Or maybe she doesn't like jazz, but she likes her interpretation of jazz. Maybe. Maybe that could be it. You know, like some people's tastes change. Like some people get tired of some stuff after a while. I, I don't know what the situation is there, but like that's that's so weird to me to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Yoko Kano, famous composer for many animes, including but not limited to the aforementioned Macross Plus Cowboy Bebop. 
She also did uh, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, Wolf's Reign, Terror and Resonance, and Space Dandy, baby. Oh, yes. Another Shinichiro Watanabe series. One that I will say right now, I do want to do an episode on in the future. Oh. So long as it's a two-parter. Stay tuned. Stay tuned someday. Stay tuned, folks. So, uh, Kids on the Slope was uh, Watanabe's first uh, single-core anime series, a series that's only like 12 episodes long. And adapting a series with a compressed number of episodes, uh, Watanabe noted that the manga of Kids on the Slope, the length of it, like, typically would have been adapted to about 15 or 16 episodes, you know, so trying to fit... 12 episodes uh, necessitated a bit of rushing, as he said. Yeah, the manga, yeah, I will admit, you can sense a little bit of that rushing bit, yeah. in the pacing of the show yeah, and the story structure. But, uh, yeah, for a, but yeah, it's just a 10-volume manga series. Yeah. So, yeah, that's eh, that still sounds fairly doable for 12 episodes. Honestly, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, with all of this, like, uh, this series uh, turned out to be a bit of a challenge for Watanabe, like... From the sound of it, it sounds like even more of a challenge than, like, say, Bebop or Champ Lou up to this point. Like, he'd have to hold back somewhat here. He'd have to, like, he'd have to go into a completely new dimension of his creative abilities. Yeah, like, I would love to know, like, what he would have done with the characters. Like, if the story lined up with what he would have done with each of the characters, or if he would have taken them in a different direction, given the chance. Like, it's very, very interesting. I would say right now, I think it's, I think it's about exactly the way he wanted it to be in the end. Yeah, like... Like I like I don't th- I don't I don't want to say that like he can be he's only creatively restricted by what he was able to do before. This the 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 thing I get from the feeling I get from Kids on the Slope is that this is like a whole new dimension he went into, like something like something completely different he was trying, and he succeeded with flying colors. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like wow, he doesn't have to direct. Wow, he he can't he doesn't he can't only just make like big crazy space adventures and hip-hop samurai (laughs) he can actually do some like really quiet reserved works here like that's really impressive and it wouldn't be the last time hang on to that so kids on the slope would run from april 12th 2012 to june 28th 2012 and would air on fuji tv in japan and uh i bring up fuji tv as uh one of the caveats we're working on this is uh, Fuji TV agreed to greenlight Watanabe's next project, Terran Resonance, afterwards in exchange for doing this? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny how those little deals work. Yeah, and uh, Terran Resonance, uh, one of, another one I, of his that I haven't seen, but I really want to. Yeah, that one that one seems kind of interesting. I don't know a whole lot about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day. So the series would eventually be released here in the States the following year after it was licensed by Sentai Filmworks, and it would receive an English dub written and directed by... Stephen Foster. And this was the big thing you warned me about when you suggested this episode. So, uh... Why did you warn me, Mikey? Yeah, well, uh, tell me what you know about Stephen Foster. Uh, what I know about Stephen Foster, um, he is most famous for, uh, directing the most famous, uh, English dub of Ghost Stories, where it's just filled with, uh, lots of cursing, uh, lots of, like, racist jokes... Lots of jokes that just have not aged well entirely. One that, uh, the voice actors, like, like, all the voice actors have said was, like, fun to work on at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe it was fun at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's a wave that he's ridden ever since for, like, the rest of his career. Obnoxiously so. Yes. To the point where it's, like, in his Twitter bio to this very day. Yeah, like, all because YouTube picked, the YouTube algorithm picked up Ghost Story dub clips 
and now it's and now like all of a sudden like he's getting even more attention because of that yeah uh way more than i think he deserves absolutely and uh now some of his other shows that he's done before uh i know he did high school of the dead which was equally vulgar and uh problematic uh, that, I would say that show in general is, like, very tasteless, <laughs> so it kind of fits. Kind of fits, <laughs> but he still goes that extra edgy mile. Yeah, with, like, dated internet references mm-hmm. and game video game references. And everyone cussing like a fucking sailor every second. Yes. Uh, those are really the only two I'm aware of outside of Kids on the Slope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, you take that guy and you put him in the director's chair for this for the dub of this show what a horrible horrible fit is this the, is this the worst dub you've ever listened to Ooh. honestly honestly yeah you would go so far as to say worst dub you've ever heard worst dub and i will go into like reasons for why i think this is the worst dub because i have another dub in mind that i know is pretty bad but I don't rate it as bad as this for a reason I will get into. But, uh, yeah, my personal feelings on Stephen Foster, uh, get ready, because, uh, you know, you know, call me Triple H, because I'm going to break out the shovel and just bury him right here. Go off. Go off. Uh, to put it bluntly, he's a piece of crap who doesn't give a shit about anime and made sure everyone knew it with poor, lazy and stupid dubs of his. He, and for some reason, he held a job until he retired from anime in 2014. He wasn't fired. He retired. He had to hang it up. Not Sentai telling him to hang it up. Which baffles me with like how his work has been going up until that point. Like, I don't know yeah, how his du- yeah, yeah, like, his dubs are not really good. <laughs> and, like, even though he clearly doesn't like anime, like, for some reason he stood on, ma- mainly because I bet he couldn't get a job elsewhere. And, yeah, to this day, he still rides the coattails of that Lord as fuck Ghost Stories dub. Which, like, I will admit, when I first heard of it, it was amusing, you know, oh, I haven't heard anime dubs like this, it was fun, ha ha ha, but... It's oh, so overrated by now. It's the most obnoxious thing in, like, the collective anime community to this very day. Like, no matter where I am, anime Twitter, YouTube, conventions, whenever, it's always, always brought up, and I fucking hate it so much. Shut the fuck up about ghost stories. I'm so sick to death of it. I'm never gonna watch it. I, I don't even want to listen to it. <laughs> the show sucks. The dub sucks. Stop talking about it. And YouTube... Please stop putting clips in my recommendations. Yes, please not stop sho- stop shoving this in my face. Like, I'm so sick of, like, blocking entire channels that post clips like this. Because it happens every fucking day. Ugh. And another big thing about his dubs, you know, it's like being edgy as hell. Uh, despite being a gay man himself, I noticed quite a lot of homophobia in his dubs. You know, like the usual, like, slurs that are thrown here and there. Like, uh, one in particular that's still... I don't know why I still lives rent free in my head is a is a line from one of the shows he did uh, Madaka Box, where there was a character that's uh, you know very tomboyish looking and uh, she referred to herself with a word I won't say here but uh, begins with a D and rhymes with bike. Oh, uh, oh god! And it's, like the first time I heard that, I'm just like, whoa, whoa, what the hell? Yeah, what the like, what the fuck? Like that is so uncalled for, and like 
even in the Kids on the Slope dub, there's a character, which we will get into later, that was made into a stereotypical gay character. Like, think Big Gay Al from South Park. I was just thinking that. Like, I didn't listen to the dub, but I was I was going to ask the question, like, are we talking about, like, subdued, campy, like, John Waters style? Or no. are we talking about, like, Big Gay Al? Big Gay Al, like, you know, like, over the top, floating around, making noise. Uh, oh, God. Like, doing this is not okay. Even if you are in the community, homophobia is still homophobia. Yeah, that's that's pretty disrespectful for that character. Because my big thing is with that is also, like, imagine saying, like, oh, some bigoted asshole watches this and goes all like, oh, this is okay, you know, a gay man's making these gay jokes, why the fuck can't I? <laughs> like, that's why that's not okay. Because you're giving them fodder. Yeah, and it's like, I don't, I don't think, like, yeah, and it's like, it's, it's one of those things where I don't think, like, the excuse of, like, he's a gay man, so it's okay for him to do it. No, it's like, like, you can't do, like, the Seinfeld thing where, like, Jerry's friend Watley turns to Judaism for, to tell Jew jokes. You can't use that excuse. Right, right. Like, I don't know if it's exactly one-to-one on that or something, but, like, um, yeah, no, it's like, you're, like, you're still perpetuating, like, a negative stereotype. A very dated stereotype. Very dated. And this dub was in 2013. Yeah, and it's like, really? Like, you're you're putting that stereotype out there in, like, 2013? And not only just 2013, in this show, where it has no place whatsoever. And is, and I should ask this one, this one, is, is it exactly as disrespectful in practice, like, in, like, when it's at, when you actually see it on screen? It's so disrespectful. Like, cringeworthy and very uncomfortable. What, 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 and, uh, I was gonna ask, uh, what other hallmarks of Stephen Foster are present in the series? Well, one of the big things is how he does not care at all. Like, another major aspect is the fact that not only does he direct his dubs, he also writes the adapted script for his dubs, too. So, like, other than the usual, like, edginess and, like, slurs and all that kind of stuff, a lot of his dubs are just very, like, straight, dry translations, too. So, like, combine the two of those and you just get, like, a very, very bad dub. Well, in Kids in the Slope, like, can you give, like, an example of, like, that? Uh, a lot, like, uh, while watching the subs for the show, watch the official subs, uh, a lot of the subs, from what I remembered from the dub, are very one-to-one. Mm. Like, no, like, other, like, adaptations, like, fit the lip flaps, because, uh, lo and behold, he didn't fit the lip flaps to any of his lines in his dubs. What? Like, I remember watching the dub and, like, being really thrown off by how most lines don't match the lip flaps at all. What? That's, yeah. That's baffling to me. And also how a lot of his actors feel like, like, a lot of the lines they use for the dub feels like first takes, like they're just reading off a script. Because, like, I know a lot of these actors are very good and have been good in other stuff, but... They don't put out their good work when Steve putting it, working with Stephen Foster. No, I, I'm pretty sure Stephen Foster's all like, read the line, okay, great, moving on. Yeah, that's lazy. Just lazy. Like, with this, he did not give one fuck about Kids on the Slope. And the biggest thing about why I don't like him, why I think this is one of the worst stuffs I've ever seen, is that doing that is fucking disrespectful. Not just because it's a Watanabe series, but doing that to any series, no matter what it is, is disrespectful. It's disrespectful to the people who worked on it, disrespectful to the cast you hired to say the shit you wrote and directed, Disrespectful to the people who watch, because no matter how you feel about any anime, it's at least one person's favorite. And I know for damn sure there's plenty of anime out there that people have been hired to dub, like Funimation, Sentai, ADV, whatever. Like, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of stuff that people have done that they don't like. But even then, they still put in the effort to make the final product good, because they had respect 
unlike Stephen Foster. He's like he's like a student or something who just coaxes by on like C's and D's, and yet like one day just like, but and yet he like wins like the football championship or something on the side. He aces the exam without like buying the book, really. <laughs> That's how you would put it. Something like that. I wouldn't say aces, C's and D's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like very, very overhyped individual, like not a very, and honestly, not a very own, talented guy. And he believes his own hype. Oh yeah, that yeah, that's even worse that like he's, he, that like he believes in his own hype. Like so much so that he put a book out about himself. It's like you're an anime ADR director who gives a shit about what you have to say. Especially if it's, if it's the quality that he's putting out after, after all this time. Yes. It's like, what do you, it's like, what do you have to say? What pithy stuff do you have to say about, like, your profession? Like, look at what you've put out. Just like, oh, listen to the word, read the words of someone who wishes you could be in Hollywood, but instead settles for anime. Like, oh, God, it just, yeah, it just screams of, like, yeah, just look at me, like, <laughs> oh, man. And I'm glad he is gone from anime, and I feel it's no coincidence that after he retired, Sentai's dub works have shot up immensely in terms of quality and continue to be good to this very day with stuff like Food Wars, Blue Into You, Kase-san, all that kind of stuff. Hmm, I wonder <laughs> what could have changed. And it's no coincidence that the moment he left, a lot of actors who mostly did work for Funimation made the trip from Dallas to Houston to do more Sentai dubs. Hmm, interesting that. Yeah, what a funny dink. <laughs> like, they were all waiting like, is he gone? Is it safe? Oh, good, we can start working with these guys now. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that that was a one-to-one -one thing that happened. But, uh... That's just, that just looks very suspicious to me. It's very serendipitous, you know? Yeah. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Yeah, like, I would never say anything, I would never say anything that might get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, it's all alleged, people. Yeah, it, just interesting stuff interesting. that happens. <laughs> interesting little coincidences that happen. But, yeah, in short, goodbye, good riddance to him, I'm glad he's gone. But, uh, yeah, this dub, that's how I watch Kids on the Slope for the first time. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I watched it in uh, another uh, Tales from uh, Anime Brigade here, watched it in my anime club in college. And it was uh, pretty rough. Mostly for me. Everyone else was kind of yucking it up towards uh, a lot of the stuff. And I'm just like, no, don't encourage him. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. The way Stephen Foster produces his dubs is why we are not covering the dub for Kids on the Slope. And this will probably be the last time we ever talk about this man here on the podcast. Oh, yeah, because I have no interest in really, like, reviewing any of his other no, ones. No, we are not doing High School of the Dead or Madaka Box or fucking Ghost Stories. Not even as a joke. No, not even for, like, an April Fool's joke. No. So, for the first time ever in anime Bebe history, we're covering the Japanese version. So, yeah, we're finally opening the uh, forbidden door of uh, sub-only anime. <laughs> finally! Finally, the doors have been open for door us. Door has been open, you know. AEW opened the Forbidden Door with New Japan. We're opening the Forbidden Door with Japanese subs. Ah, oh, yes, it feels good. Ah, oh, yeah. To be how it feels good to be like free of dub jail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to have the horizons broaden, you know, much more brighter, broader horizons. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, with all that out of the way. Summer music continues with Kids on the Slope. So without further ado, let's start the show.
All right, let's talk about the opening and the ending. The opening is Sakamichi no Melody by Yuki, and the ending is Altair by Motohiro Hata. What do you think of these songs? The opening, very, very sweet. Very sweet on the ears. Like, it's, 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 I would say it's kind of one you would expect for, like, a Slice of Life series. A very, uh, chill, like, you know, not too serious or anything. But, uh, you know, it gets across very well the music visuals, the main characters that are going to be at the center of this story, um, a little bit of their personality as well, and it really gets across that this is going to be a series uh, about music as well, with uh, characters playing their instruments and whatnot, really showing off their skills, a little bit of like the animation you might see in the series. Yeah, a lot of the instruments uh, matching up with the music in the track. Yes, yes, it's it's a very it's a very pretty opening. And the ending is also appropriately uh, somber and feels kind of like, and actually does feel like an ending. Uh, very slow, um, you know, kind of almost like a ballad kind of. Kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're both quite nice. Yeah, like ending, I feel is like uh, it's very somber, but also kind of hopeful as the song goes on. Right, right. There is a sense of like loss to it or yeah. something, or that like things like you know won't always be, remain the way they are. Yeah, fit like the series, and also like very. Like, with the lyrics, like, also kind of very nostalgic for kind of, like, a pa- the past life, you know, how things used to be. Yeah, there is there is also that a bit of that nostalgic feeling in the lyrics in the opening as well. Yeah, which, especially uh, in that. Which paints, like, very pretty pictures of um, hanging out with your friends and the things you do during summer, like, swimming and whatnot, you know. It's, yeah, it, it like, the, both the opening and ending feel, um, they have that strong bit of nostalgia that, all, that almost sounds like they are being sung by people who are looking back on their past lives and, um reminiscing a bit yeah i especially really like the opening and like one of my favorite parts of the opening where it like really starts to kick in as soon as the drums start kicking in and then we get to the chorus it's like starts to really build up like it gets me every time i always really really love that part yeah it's it's they're both very nice and just visually just really well done with like the sheet music and all the notes flying across the screen i will say one thing though i guess for a i guess for a series that featured jazz music I guess I was maybe expecting something going a little harder. <laughs> Were you expecting a little? Did it? Did it? Did it? Did it? Did it? I kind of was a little bit. Like, maybe like maybe some maybe some like Herbie Hancock or something. <laughs> something with a bit more energy to it. Mm. Some fire under its feet. <laughs> no, but I, I like the opening and ending. Uh, no, I do like the opening and ending. Yeah, they're very nice. So kick off in the summer of 1966 as a young boy named Kaoru Nishimi, played here by Ryohei Kimura has moved to his uncle's place in Sasebo and begins his high school life. Ah, uh, yeah. With this and back, we get back-to-back coming-of-age stories. And, uh, Kaoru and Koyuki, uh, pretty similar, wouldn't you say? Mmm, yeah, they kind of are a bit. Like, uh, while Koyuki is a bit more, like, aimless early on in his high school life, Kaoru is a bit more resentful early on in the series, you know, lamenting on how much he just hates how things are and how he hates trudging up the, uh, titular slope to get up to school. They're both in similar positions, but, like, personality-wise, they are very different. And uh, also, he's a total fish out of water as he moved from uh, Yokosuka, which is uh, right next to Tokyo. And uh, Sasebo is uh, down next to uh, Nagasaki, and also Saga! Oh, the setting of Zombieland Saga. Uh, somewhere out there in uh, 1966, a uh, two-year-old Junko Kono is running around. Holy shit! <laughs> I didn't even think about that. You know, uh, 14 years before she would die horribly in a plane crash and turn into a zombie. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Kaoru here, uh, pretty much seen as a bit of an outcast too. You know, a lot of the students all around his new school are uh, kind of talking about him and going all like, oh, this rich boy from the big city, ooh, isn't he so fancy? 
Right, right. So he's, you know, he's he's kind of feeling that alienation a little bit as he walks up that slope that uh, every student has to walk up right over to his new school. And uh, he's also told that he should uh, watch out for a uh, delinquent uh, who sits behind him, a boy named Kawabuchi. And uh, if he zeroes in on you, it's all over. So uh, all of this stress is like really uh, building on Kaoru and uh, he feels very sick. But that goes all away when he meets uh, Ritsuko Mukai, played here by Yuka Nanri. As uh, she's here to show him around the school. And uh, Ritsuko here, she's just the absolute sweetest. She really is. You know, just as soon as he sees her, he's just all like, huh, don't feel sick, sick anymore. How about that? Though <laughs> so, the stress is still starting to get to him with his new school life. And uh, all the stress has caused him to pretty much have uh, panic attacks. And the only way to uh, calm him down is to get away from it all and head to the roof of the school. Once there, he meets a certain someone. Introducing... Sentaro Kawabuchi, the same Kawabuchi that was mentioned before, played here by Yoshimasa Hoyosa. And what a first impression does this guy make? <laughs> like, he has almost a bit of a meet-cute with Kaoru. You know, he's like uh, laying down, covered by a blanket. Kaoru lifts up the blanket, and he's like... And then he say something along the lines of like, Oh, I didn't know I, didn't know I was going to meet an angel today. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's cute. And then he, afterwards, he proceeds to rough up some uh, school thugs, too. <laughs> and uh, we know that Sentaro is tough because he's uh, covered in band-aids and he wears uh, the Jotaro Kujo hat. Yeah, he, he, does have a, he does have a very striking design, even though it's very simple. Just that, like, you know, he's got that, like, shirt on that kind of makes him look almost like a sailor, almost. Mm -hmm. He's got, like, the hat and stuff. You know, he's got a very distinct, like, face. Band-aids, some scars on his nose and cheeks. Yep, tall figure, you know, he's muscular. Also notably, uh, light, uh, almost blondish hair. Right, right, That that's also very important as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looks nice for a guy who dresses like Waldo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there he is. There he is. <laughs> then Sentaro immediately takes a liking to Kaoru as soon as he sees, they're in the same exact class, you know, he's sitting by behind one other student, and then he sees him, he goes like, oh, I'm sitting behind you now. I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> just takes the kids just takes the kid's seat that was behind him, like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be behind you now. <laughs> and he also gives him a nickname, uh, Richie, because he's a brainiac fancy pants from the big city. I know at one point he they, he is once referred uh Kaoru is once referred to as Richie Rich as well. Yep. <laughs> which does sync up. Like Richie Rich like was actually created before this time. Yep, the comics were still going on. Yep. <laughs> Fortunately he doesn't have a McDonald's in his house. <laughs> Though, uh, when I was watching this first episode, I was just remembering why I really did, like, uh, really love the relationship between these two and just how their dynamic just seems to click within the first half of the first episode. Well, yeah, they, they, yeah, their chemistry is, like, really good right off the bat. And, uh, I like the little moment where, like, uh, Kaoru's just trying to get away from him, but then Sintaro just chases after him, you know, hands in his pocket, doing these big strides, going on, like, this looks like fun, I'm gonna follow you around. <laughs> Yeah, Sentaro uh, immediately puts himself across with his personality. He's a big old, lovable, tough teddy bear. Yes. And we also see that uh, him and uh, Ritsuko are pretty good friends as she gives out to him for getting into another fight. And this is kind of a usual thing between them. We see the, see uh, Kaoru and Sentaro playing around in the rain, and it's also pretty great too. <laughs> like He's just trying to get away from him. He's like, why? Why are you running? I want, I want to be next to you. Come on. Go on. Oh, oh you're playing the game? Oh, this is fun. Playing tag. Oh, and around this time, like, after they get out of the rain, uh, Ritsuko starts to notice how, uh, kind of handsy, uh, Kaoru is with his glasses off. Oh, yeah. And, uh, a so, little subtlety here that I noticed a little afterwards where, like, uh, the next day, Kaoru and Ritsuko are talking, and, uh, you see him, like, slowly 
quickly take off his glasses and continues the conversation with her. I just thought it was a nice touch. <laughs> oh, I didn't catch that actually. Yeah, it's very nice. quick, but when you notice it, it's like, like oh, I'm uh, han- oh, I'm handsome without my glasses. Well, might as well uh, take these off and uh, give you uh, a better look. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the boys then start talking about music for a bit as uh, Kaoru's trained in uh, classical piano and Sentaro is a skilled jazz drummer. And uh, speaking of music, Ritsuko, or Richan as Kaoru now calls her since they're now on a first name basis, takes him to her family's record store. And uh, we're early on into their interactions, but they're all very, very cute. Yeah, like all like all the, all their interactions right now, like between these three, are all like incredibly strong. Like just the first episode and we can kind of tell like, oh yeah, this is going to be a very fun, cute, tight-knit trio here. Yeah, you know exactly what's going on with all these three. Like, it gets out of the way real quick, so we can get to the drama yeah. even quicker. Get to the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so at the store, we meet Richan's father, Sutomo Mukai, played here by Zenki Kitajima. And since Karu knows both Richan and Sentaro, he's allowed to go down to the store's rehearsal space, the basement, complete with a piano and drum set. And at said drum set is none other than Sentaro. Like, ah, you can't escape him, Kaoru, no matter how much you might want to. This is when we both get to see them play, you know, Kaoru gets on the piano, Sentaro is on the drums, and my god, does the animation look good. Yeah, they, they I think they notably used reference material for, uh, with, um, I think the reference material they used in the animation was, um, uh, more inexperienced jazz, like, p- uh, musicians or something. Yep. And the, the way they, and, like, yeah, they, they wanted, like, that kind of roughness from those, like, younger, like, talents to, um, really, uh... Like getting to really get across more like personality with um, the movements of the characters. Yeah, but Watanabe and uh, Kano they wanted to like they wanted to get get some uh, musicians that are like very like rough and therefore charming. Yes, it's 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 the it's the Metalocalypse route here, folks. Yeah. Where, uh, <laughs> like all like they they go to great lengths to portray the uh, music the plane of music very accurately. Yep, and uh, all their uh, performances are done and uh, motion captured by uh, Takshi Matsunaga for uh, Kaoru and Shun Ishigewaka for Sentaro. And a little uh, behind the scenes here, uh, Moriyama, who uh, estimates that uh, about half of the production time and budget for the series went towards creating its uh, musical performances. Ooh, I can believe it. Uh, Moriyama, he actually did work on uh, Beck Mongolian Chop Squad in the past, so he did have a bit of experience, you know, when it comes to, like, animating and playing. Oh, you can really see it in this. You really can. Though he did find jazz a uh, bit of a huge challenge, because with jazz, it's a lot of, like, improvisation. Oh, yeah, that that in itself does present a bit of a hurdle there. And uh, there was actually pressure to uh, render the uh, performances with uh, CGI to reduce uh, time and cost, but uh, Watanabe didn't want to do that. He wanted to render these with a uh, hand-drawn animation using, like, uh, rotoscoping, where they would film them performing, and then they would draw later. Yeah, and it looks incredible in practice. It looks so good, and just, it's so very slick, too. Like, they really get across, like, the energy and, th- and enthusiasm that really goes into creating jazz music. And uh, we hear a little bit of the song they're playing, uh, Monin by Art Blakely and the Jazz Messengers. Great song here. It's it's a it's a good jazz standard. It really is. Like lots of jazz standards in the series. In fact, the episodes are named after jazz standards. Yeah, like this is a really great gimmick, and uh, I'll go through a lot, go through them as we go on because it's they're pretty interesting. But yeah, Monin, great song, and I just love the little opening bit. Just the dun, 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 like it's. So I, th- I think compositionally, it also um, 
was befitting this because like it's a very like easy like riff to like play initially you know and then like once you get past that intro you like you can really like get into um you can really get into like more of like the improvisation factor that comes into jazz music so yeah monin good beginners jazz standard and for kaoru he really needs that yeah <laughs> but like it does sort of become like the the song that really like bonds Kaoru with uh, Sentaru here throughout the series. Yes, this is like a running theme with the entire series. The song right here. Yes, absolutely. So it's very important to the overall to the relationship between these two. So uh, going on to like episode two, which is uh, named "Summertime," a song by George Gershwin. Uh, Kaoru's spending any chance he can get uh, playing to get the song right. He really needs to feel it if he wants to get that swing down, because that's one of the things where. He was playing it, and Centaur was like, yeah, you're hitting the notes right, but there's no swing. There's no feel to it. Like, come on, you gotta work on that. You really gotta feel it, man. And he really wants to show up, Centaro, and also impress Richon. As, uh, you know, every everyone knows uh, the ladies dig a guy who knows his jazz. You know, just ask Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> but more comparisons to Beck here, as uh, Kaoru gets into some uh, bully trouble here. But uh, thankfully, it's not a big part of the series. And also, thankfully, Centaro comes to the rescue at uh, Ritsuko's behest, and he swoops in with a uh, Precure-esque diving single leg drop kick here. Oh, bro! Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the fight, a lot of the uh, there isn't very much like fighting in the series, and if it ever, if it ever is, it's almost entirely done by Centaro. But it does kind of have a bit of a yeah, a bit of like a, a bit of a a bit of quality to it that feels very uh, somewhat reminiscent of uh, the fight choreography in like Cowboy Bebop and Samurai Champloo. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Like it's uh. It's very action-packed, but also very, like, quirky, and also the uh, the heels, the villains, are kind of a little bumbling at times, too, which also adds to it. Yeah, that, that is something that I think is very unique to Watanabe. He likes playfulness in his fight scenes. Like, even in this fight scene here, uh, Sentaro subdued with uh, pocket sand. <laughs> <laughs> and then Kaoru tries to make the save to impress Ritsuko, but then he trips and falls into, like, uh, a well. And, uh, yeah, a lot of the moves Sentaro breaks out here feels like stuff Spike would do in Cowboy Bebop. It, it feels almost like uh, like classic uh, like Buster Keaton comedy or something like the fight scenes he does or something like they're also just incredibly smooth and well choreographed like every movement flows perfectly into each other you know just give him like a push broom to like play around with too <laughs> and say he loves women who can kick his ass <laughs> but ah Centaur really cares about Kaoru here it's so sweet and he's also really concerned about his uh, fingers especially because he knows he's been practicing the song. And afterwards, we head back to the music store, and we're then introduced to a real cool cat here. Introducing Junichi Katsuragi, played here by Junichi Sawabe. Otherwise known as Brother Jun. Oh yeah, this guy oozes jazz. He's cooler than the other side of the pillow. Mmm, yeah. And just the smoothest voice. <laughs> yeah, he does have a very nice calming voice in the series. He's a friend to both uh, Sentaro and Ritsuko's families, and they both see him as uh, their big brother. And now that Jun's here... It's time for a jam session. As uh, he's on trumpet, Ritsuko's dad's on the double bass, and then Kaoru joins in too with uh, Sentaro on drums. And it's, it's very good.
んだビクビクしよっとだ細かこと気にせんで飛び込め Just the, the jazz chops for the series getting flexed. Oh, like it's it's just our big first taste here, folks. And I just love how like、uh, Kaoru's a bit a little hesitant, like, oh, no, 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 I can't go in. And they're like, come on, man, join in. And then he's like, just pressing some keys here and there. And he's like, come on, keep going. And then he's, and he's kind of starting out with like what he kind of knows already from his classical training, but then he starts to like play around a little bit and like fill around. You know, he's not like, he's not thinking too much about like consistency or anything. You know, it's just all about improvisation, you know, just like doing what you think works in the moment. But then he starts like, but then he starts like getting into the groove of it and like really feeling the beat. And then it starts to feel even more, more and more consistent as he plays. And he actually kind of gets into it. Yeah. It's, it's a very fun first jam session. This is ex- like this, this whole, this whole like first jam session here, like perfectly portrays why it was、um, always so fun for me to play jazz, even though it was a very. Uh, technically demanding、uh, genre to play. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I should maybe clarify this. I was in jazz band in high school,、mm-hmm. and I absolutely loved it. <laughs>、uh, very hard work. And at the time, I wasn't very big into practicing. But <laughs> man, like, it, it really did instill in me a、uh, love of the、uh, style. It, really, it truly did. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunate that there's no trombones in the series. Yeah. Or saxophones, Sax- actually. Yeah, because I、uh, played alto saxophone. Yes. But,、uh, I was、man. never in jazz band, but、uh, came close for、uh, one semester of high school where, as a class, our small version of our band class, we kind of came up with our own song for one semester. Right, right. Yeah, God, it's, it's, it's really, bring, it's really like, bringing me back to that time、mm-hmm. watching this. It's just, it, it filled me with like, all those memories. You know, calling back to the nostalgia thing. Ah, <laughs>、uh, say, do you know what time it is? What time is it? Beach episode time! Hey! <laughs> Even、uh, an anime like this can't avoid it. Our trio gets,、uh, goes out for a little summer beach time here. But、uh, no better place to do it, though, than、uh, Sasebo. Because, like, can we like, talk just very briefly about the、um, setting here? Yes, yes. Kids yes. on the Slope? Because、uh, the setting in particular is,、uh, I think, much more special and. Very notable and very much informs、uh, the plot, as we will see、uh, later on. But yes, this is Sasebo,、uh, located in Nagasaki. Yep, in、uh, the Kyushu region. Yes, yes.、Uh, this, like, yeah,、uh, it's, it's got a very big、uh, fishing industry and, do- and like, dock working industry, you know.、Um, gorgeous, like, ocean sides out there. Really beautiful. And all that really gets flexed in this episode right here. And uh, also, uh, Sasebo, uh, the hometown of、uh, the manga, manga author、uh, Kudama. Yes, exactly. Yeah, based that around、uh, her life in, in growing up in the city. I find that so fascinating. Like, I, 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 like, I appreciate some works out there all the more because, like, that's.、Uh, I appreciate some works out there in particular that 
zero in on some of the more some of the lesser known like places out there in Japan. I feel like Japan very often uh, gets pigeonholed into like certain areas. Like I, I identified maybe like four places that you see more than anywhere else depicted in anime and manga and a lot of media uh, that comes from Japan. If if you want your story in a city, you you base it in Tokyo. Tokyo. If you want uh, somewhere that's a bit more scenic and has a lot of history behind it. And, you know, you can also, like, do some storytelling with um, uh, what Japan perceives as country bumpkins. <laughs> you go to the Kansai region, but mm-hmm. particularly Kyoto. Yep, the former capital of the country. Yes, yes. Uh, if you want snow, Hokkaido. Hokkaido, yep. And if you want, like, islands and beaches, you go to Okinawa. Mm-hmm. I feel like many of the other places in the country, though, kind of... Uh, Kind of gets snubbed a little bit in that regard, uh, you know. You do you do see a bit of a uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima here and there, but um, I do think some other pretty places like uh, Yokohama or even Fukuoka yeah. kind of get passed over. Also Nara, Nara as well. Like there there are some really gorgeous places out there in Japan. Oh, it's a beautiful country. And I and I really wish a lot more media would take advantage of those places and those locales because. A lot of, like, cool, rich, like, personal histories in, this, in, in those areas. And Sasebo is no different. Yeah, and, like, considering the author is from there, it's like, his story feels very personal. Feels very personable, feels, feels very genuine. All of the environments are, like, incredible, are lovingly well-rendered in this series. Absolutely. Like, Sa- Sasebo, very gorgeous. Like, after watching the series, I would love to visit there. I absolutely would love it. I'd love to go there. Oh man, and it's and, it, and it's so important because it informs like many. It it also informs like some characters in the series in the in the series as well. Like it's it's like the setting of Kids on the Slope is much more important to the overall work than many other um, anime and even manga works. Also, I did look it up the distance between uh, Sasebo and uh, Tokyo. Uh, apparently, a fourteen-hour train ride. Is that today? Yeah. Oh, imagine how long it was in nineteen sixty-six. Oh wow, yeah. Oh, uh, I mean, I'm I'm sure they had trains at that time, but like probably oh, not did, as like yeah, fast as like what we have not today. Not the super speed trains. Yeah, because like in the series, like whenever they speak of Tokyo, they do speak of it as though it's like like another country away. Yeah, like so that really gets over like the distance between uh, both cities. Right, right, and uh, as I think it's even stated in the series, I know it's hard for us to pick on up on that, but I believe uh, the characters do have accents. Yep, and uh, the subtitles do kind of like uh, uh, illustrate that in their subs, you know, with like you know shortened words here and there, and kind of putting in a bit of a dialect in there, somewhat similar to like kind of a southern dialect in a way. Right, right. So yeah, right, right, right here is where I wanted to really like point out that the setting here is really important. <laughs> Oh, and also around this time we get into a bit of the uh, Catholic Christianity themes in here as we find, as Akaru finds uh, Richai and Centaro at church and even notices the uh, the rosaries with the cross that uh, Centaro wears as a necklace throughout the entirety of the series. Yes, that is also very important. Like, it's it's not, in, in, in the character's personal relationships, like, it's not, like, or at least on, like, a, on like an episode-to-episode basis, it's not always at the forefront but like the Catholicism of the of um Centaro and Ritsuko like does inform them like very heavily. Yeah, like it hangs out in the background a lot and kind of leads to some pretty important scenes later on in the series. Especially considering the history of Catholicism in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> which has been 
like very sordid. <laughs> Care to give us a bit of a taste of that? Uh, yes. Uh, the uh, the Jesuits and the Portuguese, like way back when, brought Catholicism to Japan. Initially, it was very well. It was very welcome, but um, I believe that caused started to cause conflict with uh, the peasant class uh, because the um, the higher ups, you know, the emperor and shogunate, I believe. Uh, did not like that uh, some people were showing more devotion to God than their rulers. Mm. And so it led to a lot of persecution of Catholics uh, during, like, those olden times. Where uh, people literally had to uh, step on effigies of Jesus. Or uh, they would be threatened with, like, torture and death. Cool. Like, fucking horrible. Wow. Like, horrifying. Like I, I I can't touch on like all of it. Like I might like I may have gotten like some of like smaller details like wrong there, but like it was a very harsh time unlike like Catholics at, like during in that period. Like really horrible. Like that's 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 a real horrible history that Japan has had to reckon with. Yeah, I guess it's I guess I guess that in particular is a little um Odd for me, being like a former Catholic myself. Yeah. <laughs> might as well get that out of the way now. Yeah, and I'm agnostic, so I have no police elsewhere. Right, right. Like, I don't, like, I never, like, bother to, like, really clarify my beliefs. Um, you know, I never like clarifying specifically because I just don't care to. <laughs> it's kind of just like, I don't know, I'll believe whatever I can on the fly or something. But there, there's one quote in particular that I would like to read here from a work that, um, I don't know, I, I heard it and, like, it just made so much sense to me. I read, I read, I read it and I thought to myself, that's kind of me. Like, that is kind of me right there. And it is a quote from the video game Night in the Woods. It is a dialogue spoken between two characters. The main character, May, and her friend Angus, who uh, suffered a lot of abuses as a child and lost his faith in God. And May is having a bit of a discussion here with him over uh, some constellations that they were looking out in the sky. Uh, you know, pointing out whales and like, con and, like, connecting stars to, like, create whales and stuff. And the, the dialogue goes like this, with uh, May starting off. So, like, I feel like if I'd been through that, I'd be more likely to believe in God, or something. Do you believe in anything at all? And Angus responds, um, so, like, the constellations. I don't believe there's a whale out there, but I, uh, believe the stars exist, and that people put the whale up there. Like, I don't know, we're good at drawing lines through the space between stars. Like, we're pattern finders, and we'll find patterns, and we, like, really put our hearts and minds into it even if we don't mean to. So, I believe in a universe that doesn't care, and people who do. May responds, Pattern finders. I feel like a lot of people don't believe they found God, but, like, God found them, like, when they were having bad times like you did. And Angus, Angus responds, God never did. I was completely alone in the pantry, but a few years later, Greg did. So, like, the stars can stay up there and not give a shit about us, but this whale is pretty cool. Like, if you ever want to know, like, what my personal beliefs are, like, that whole quote mm. is. <laughs> so yeah, there's your Sunday school lesson there, kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, could, I mean, I, I do remember some old stuff from, like, my uh, yeah. Catholic days. <laughs> Enough to last a lifetime and to know that I don't want to breach any of it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so as the trio head back from their very nice swimming trip, Centauro's bully senses tingle as he stops a group of goons from harassing a girl. The creeps immediately run off as soon as they realize who Centaro is. Guess his reputation follows him everywhere. <laughs> anyway, let's meet this new girl. Introducing Yurika Fukahori, played here by Aya Endo. 
and it looks like it's love at first sight. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? <laughs> it really is that. It, it, is, really it is. is. It is love at first sight for Centauro. Oh, and this brings us to episode three. Someday my prince will come from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, not originally a jazz song, but has been covered by multiple jazz artists over the years, such as uh, Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Chikoria. Yes, whenever Miles Davis was uh, taking a break from his giant coke pile. <laughs> Can I just say right now, like, a lot of people forget, like, like don't know a lot about, like, a lot of people remember, like, the respectful guy who was, like, a trumpet player and, like, wore, like, you know, slick Italian suits. But, like, he was a real surly bastard. Like, a lot of people don't know that. Like, like he, like he had drug addictions. Like, he kept guns and stuff. Uh, I hear he loved saying the word bitch. I <laughs> uh, should work for WWE then. Ah, right? <laughs> yeah, like, like God, like, even, but, like, God, like, even when, like, later in his life and he was, like, losing his, like, voice to, like, fucking cancer, I believe it was, or something, mm-hmm. like, still could put out, like, amazing music. Oh, definitely. Aw, poor Centauro doesn't know what it's like to be in love. Aw. <laughs> and like a bro, Kaoru tries to help Centauro with his crushy-wushy. And around this time, we get to see uh, Centauro's home life as uh, he lives with a few little siblings and his mom. And he's also got a little pigeon named Sarah, too, so it's all very sweetness going around here. Little pigeon he calls his girlfriend. Yeah. That's cute. <laughs> uh, the complete opposite to what uh, Kaoru's home life is. Right, it's, it's, it's a very cold environment where, like, he doesn't really... Uh, I believe he lives with his aunt, I believe. Yep, it's his uncle's place, but uh, he's never around, so it's just his aunt and his cousin. Yeah, uh, very distant from the people he has at home. And uh, he's also very restricted there. Like, you know, when he tries to play the piano, his aunt's just like, yep, just like, hey, stop that right now. Only only at fancy dinner parties. Yeah. And his cousin's just always trying to get him in trouble and stuff. So, yeah, it's very, very constricting at home. You know, for a guy who has everything, he has nothing. Yeah, it doesn't have much in the way of freedom over there. So, uh, what's the plan for the for our boys here? Double date! God, the way Centaro tries to ask out Yurika is so freaking cute. Like, he shows up, can't say anything, runs away, then comes back, and he's got, like, a note written down with what he has to say there, and he... And he's just reading off the note, <laughs> like, will you go out with... God, I can't do this. And then Yurika's there to help him read it, he's like, go out with me. Yes, go out with me, thank you. <laughs> And then he screws it up in the end, and he makes it seem like Kaoru wanted to ask her out. He's all like, so, who's uh, who's really asking me here? He's like, oh, oh, this guy. This guy's uh, the, the whole brains behind this operation here. Oh! <laughs> God, he's so awkward and adorable. <laughs> and during the date itself, Centaro can't even look at Yurika, because she's just so pretty. And also so much uh, grade-A teen drama and misunderstandings here, as... Uh, Everyone's kind of figuring out, like, who likes who, you know, Kaoru's trying to clear things up with Ritsuko, saying, all like, no, I didn't ask her out, he, Centaro's trying to ask her out, but then he thinks Ritsuko's in love with Centaro because she runs away crying, he thinks, like, oh, she's upset because he's with another girl, and it's like, no, she's into you, dude, just, ah. All getting out of this out of the way early. <laughs> like, who likes who, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, where, where everyone is awkward. Bit of a Midsummer Night's Dream kind of thing here. Yeah. <laughs> Then he gets into a fight with Centaro about the whole thing, but it's uh, all quickly resolved, and uh, it's it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, these guys kind of have like their tiffs here and there, but uh, in the end, they always just come together when it comes to like playing jazz music, and that just what well, brings them together in the end. Yeah, like it's resolved quickly, but 
I can't I can't get mad at this. It's so fun to watch these two guys play. And then later on, Kaoru plays Someday My Prince Will Come for Rijan. And it's very beautifully done, I might add. Just very, you know, slow. Like, he's kind of still needs to practice a bit, but he's still... He clearly put in the effort to try and learn Yeah, he put in the effort, and he still knows just enough to play just for her. And then he confesses to her, like, oh, way to go for it! And it's a great scene where she's all like, oh, so you're practicing for someone? He's like, no, this is the performance right now for you. Ah, yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bringing us to episode four, But Not For Me, which is a song by uh, Georgian Ira Gershwin for the musical Girl Crazy. While we let uh, Kairu's confession sit for a bit, it's almost Christmas time. And Brother June comes in with good news. Our uh, jazz quartet here has been invited to perform at a local bar. A uh, gaijin bar full of U.S. soldiers, to be precise. And why is that important important historically? Uh, Being 1966, this would be right in the middle of the Vietnam War, and a lot of uh, U.S. uh, sailors were stationed at uh, marine bases in Japan. Yeah, I believe it was uh, actually during the Korean War that the uh, American military started to, like, really kind of create, like, a bit of a base in, like, that area specifically. And also, like, on the wider scale, like, Nagasaki in general as well, Mm -hmm. and used it kind of as a staging area for that. But, uh, yeah, this would be, like, right around the time of the uh, Vietnam War. Yeah, like, right in the middle, like, right at the height of it. Right, right. So, yeah, it's 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 important that there are... It, it is somewhat important that there are, you see soldiers in this area. Yeah, and, like, while, like, it doesn't really come into the plot overall, it kind of, like, adds a bit more to the setting. Like, it helps get over that. Because that frame. is the time period, and, like, the fact that they bothered to put that in there shows that they do care <laughs> yeah. about, like, this specific setting. 1966. In this area of Japan right here. And, like, in a lot of crowd scenes, you do see a lot of, like, uh, soldiers uh, or uh, sailors in uniform wandering around the city. But that's so good, though! It adds to the atmosphere. It's like, ah, you did your research, and it's just, mmm, feels good. Yes! Mmm! And, uh, I gotta say, Christmas time and jazz, kind of a great combination, wouldn't you say? Yeah, like, honestly, I don't know why jazz, like fits well with the Christmas season. Like, maybe it's because uh, watching a lot of the Charlie Brown Christmas special every year, and there's, like, a lot of jazz in the uh, background music to that special. Right, right. Yeah, I guess I guess, I guess, guess we're kind of informed of it by, the, by that. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know why it's, like, something that uh, you see played so much more often around Christmas time in particular. Like, outside of the context of, like, uh, media we may have grown up with. Like, I don't know. I'd be interested to, like, read up about, like, why that is. Yeah, because it's just... I can just feel there was, like, nothing like, you know, cold winter's night, watching the snow fall, throwing on a jazz record, and just taking it all in. Like, that just seems pitch perfect right there. Yeah, maybe maybe it's, like, maybe it's because jazz, I would say, does have something of a uh, cozy nature to it. It does. Maybe maybe that maybe that's why it fits well with the Christmas season. I can see that, yeah. Uh, so while out buying a gift for uh, Centaro, because uh, his birthday is also on Christmas Day... Kaoru makes a move on Richon. Uh, he plants a kiss on her. Uh, smooth move or a big mistake? Might be a big mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Kaoru's upset at himself for unexpectedly uh, planting one on her, and then uh, Sentaro and his siblings come and see this, and uh, Sentaro's wondering, like, hey, what's going on, Richie? And, he's, and he just blows up at him. He's just jealous of Sentaro, feels that he's just got it all, has a place where he belongs, and people that care about him. And then Centaro opens up about himself, showing that he doesn't have it all. This is this is like a big. This was like the big moment that like really sold me on the series. This was that moment 
Uh, Santaro reveals his backstory here, which is that he is the son of uh, an American serviceman and a Japanese woman. Wasn't, like, his mom not around or something, too? Oh, yeah, like, after, like, he was born, she kind of, like, walked out. Right, right. So, like, he was kind of just left with, like, his dad and his grandmother. And his grand and his grandmother, like, hated his guts because, mm-hmm. like, she felt like his father, like, wasted his life on that one woman who walked out on him. Yeah, and also with uh, Centauro, the way he looks is, like, with the blonde, blondish hair. Like, he can't hide who he is. He can't is. hide who he is, his facial features, everything like that. So everyone knows that he's, an Amer- he's like, half American and kids are just picking on him throwing stuff out and going, like, hey, American, speak English, that sort of thing. But then, like, his grandmother dies, and, like, his father, like, puts the blame on him. Because Santaro was there when his grandmother died, and sent in a really heartbreaking scene, Santaro goes to grab his father's hand for comfort, and his father just takes it away from him. Oh, God. And it's just, his birth family just disowned him, and now, and all he had left to remember his birth family was the, the rosaries that he wears as a necklace, which were from his mother. Right, right. So, yeah, he, he, he does, like, keep that, like, Catholic upbringing uh, around him. Uh, <laughs> I, I do also think it's a it's a distinctly uh, delinquent thing that he wears the rosary around his neck. Yeah, you're not supposed to wear it as a when, necklace. Like, every, when, like, every Christian religion tells you, you you're not supposed to wear the rosary as a necklace. To which, I would, to which I would respond, well, don't make it look like a fucking necklace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the that's the lapsed Catholic in me talking. <laughs> you just made it so inviting. Come on, change up the design a little bit. <laughs> right. Hey, how would you make it a string or something? Yeah. Huh? You know, a single string. You know, you're gonna you're gonna count each of the beads like a string. You know, why not make it a string? Cut up the middle, man. I know, right? Like just. <laughs> but uh, I'm no. sorry for any uh, blasphemy we're saying right here. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I I call it more constructive criticism. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that like, but yeah, that informed, uh, but yeah, then Sant- Santaro, um, he then... He's uh, adopted by, uh, the family that we do see in the series right now. Right, right, that is, that is his adoptive family. Wow! What a backstory to drop. Yeah. Like, Kaoru knew nothing about Santaro. No, like, Kaoru was just angry at him, because, you know, he's just upset with what happened with, Re- with Richan, and then Santaro just very calmly just saw, like, hey... You know, you might have this impression of me, but here's here's the deal about what's going on with me. I don't really have it all. I honestly feel I don't have a place I belong. So, yeah, but I try to make do. And wow, that, like, when I first saw that, I'm just like, man, this that is hard. And it fits perfectly into, like, the setting in time as well. Like, this is such a believable, like piece of this is such a believable like backstory for this place and time for this location in particular such care and love went into it yeah because like not only the fact that centauro is half-blooded but also the fact that the other half american kind of a sore spot yes yes absolutely (laughs) and you know you see the setting uh not that far from uh nagasaki Pa- yeah, post World War Two, mm-hmm. that 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 stigma. Like and his mom hooked up with like a World War Two GI. Yes, the, the the whole stigma that he has lived throughout his life is like is is lent itself greatly by the history of the of the setting here. And it's and it's so tragic. Yeah, but just woven into the story, like 
very well and very respectfully. And it's like, okay, th- yeah, that's why he looks this way. This is kind of like why he like acts the way he is. This is why he's like hung on to like his Catholic beliefs all this time. And that's why he also like just started being like the tough guy picking fights with everyone because he's just rather than try to get close to people, he's just gonna push them away. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the quartet continues to practice and practice until the day of the big Christmas gig. And now this is the setting here is how you really should experience jazz, you know, dimly lit bar surrounded by a bunch of other people, band on stage and just taking it all in. Mm, you just sit back, sip your gin and you just, yeah, let it wash just over snap you. Snap your fingers, nod your head and just go, yeah. Although, although if, if you're more like me, you, you prefer it to be, like, way quicker and faster yeah. and get you wild. It's like, I, like I'll, I'll say right now, you get me into a crowd where the squirrel nut zippers are playing, <laughs> and you give me access to alcohol, holy shit, like, I'm gonna be, like, wanting to, like, get up and dance with people and just, like, <laughs> cut a rug. Like, you cannot control me. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I just had to name drop Squirrel Nut Zippers there. Yeah, give him a plug. I, I, I feel like some people would give me shit for that, but and uh, yeah, okay, maybe fair, maybe fair. Not everyone likes them, but uh, <laughs> like, oh man, like they, they, they got the energy, man. They, they know how to swing. What can I say? Yeah, hope you all enjoyed this little promotion for them. <laughs> God, I, God, I hope to see them live again someday. So this whole concert is going pretty well until. Uh, a uh, drunken racist starts ca- causing trouble and uh, using some words that I won't repeat here. Yeah, some uh, par- particular slurs for African Americans that start with a C. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it, 1966. Yeah, it's it's still that time. And uh, Centaro's rightfully pissed about this. You know, he tries to start a fight with this guy, and uh, Brother June is just trying to calm things down. No, fuck him up, Centaro. Yeah, Centaro. No, let him go. Don't don't hold me back, brother. Don't hold me back. <laughs> But uh, June calms things down by performing, but not for me. And he's got a real nice singing voice here. He does, actually. And also, yeah, it's his uh, Japanese actor singing in English here, too. Yeah, very good at singing the song. Really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, everything's all cool now, though. Yeah, fuck that racist guy. And um, yeah, I'll see. seems like things are uh, going on between uh, Yurika and June as uh, they bumped into each other before the gig. Something kind of stirs in her a little bit when she sees that performance of his. Just, huh, she's interested in him. And this could throw some uh, some things out of whack here. <laughs> Bringing us to episode 5, Lullaby of Birdland by George Shearing and George Davis Weiss, which is also a lyric in the OP. So, uh, yeah, Kara's going through some stuff, too, and uh, he can't bring himself to face Ritsuko after the uh, Christmas kiss thing. See, this is why consent is a thing, man. You know, I know it's the 60s, I'm sure guys were smooching all over the place, but uh, come on, consent is still needed. Yeah. Can't all be the big movies where you do the big dip kiss, man. It's it's, it's <laughs> fantasy, it's Hollywood. I know you might be spurred on because it's post-World War II and people are making fucking babies. They are fucking like monkeys. Cooking <laughs> <laughs> up babies. <laughs> but tone it back, man. Tone, tone it back. back. Reel it back. Calm, calm, calm your boy down there. <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, the awkwardness between them is... It, it, it is awkward, but it's also very, very real, too. You know, kind of remind me of, like, the stuff between uh, Koyuki and Maho from Beck. You know, it's like, it's kind of frustrating, but it's like, I totally get it. I totally understand how it's feeling. It's love. It's messy. It's messy. It's teen love, too. Mm-hmm. But uh, then they tried to patch things up by talking through, like, a children's uh, canned string phone thing there. <laughs> it's like, ah, you kids. But even then, they still can't do it. I'm just like, ah, you kids. 
Oh, you kids on the slope. (laughs) Get on that slope and start making up. (laughs) I wish they could sit down and talk, but eh, it makes sense. Yeah. And uh, Kairu's got some more things to worry about as getting a letter containing his mother's address in Tokyo here. As uh, his parents uh, split up when he was really young, so he doesn't really remember her too much. And he ultimately decides to seek her out, and Sentaro invites himself along because he's just that kind of guy. And he's uh, really into the idea of Kaoru reuniting with his mom, probably kind of projecting some of his own personal feelings onto him, you know, with the mother that he never knew. Right, having that kind of baggage with him. You know, it's just like, if you don't do this now, you might never have another chance. Yeah. So, while in Tokyo, they decide to stay with uh, Brother June, but it turns out he's been missing for the past month, actually. And Kaoru notices that uh, Yurika has been sending him letters as of late, as it's been stuffed in his mailbox. And he tries to quickly hide that away from Sentaro, you know, not know that anything's going on between them. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, something, something, something is up. Yeah, very weird. So uh, Kaoru finally meets his mother, and the scene between them is actually very, very heartwarming. It starts off a little awkward, considering they haven't seen each other in forever, but... Yeah. As soon as they start to loosen up a bit, you know, have some fun, tell some laughs, have some laughs, that sort of thing, they immediately start hitting, hitting it off and, like... Acting as if no time has passed between them. Yeah. As if they've always been there for each other the entire time. And Kaoru's worries just disappear in that moment. And it's just... Mm, it, it it warms my heart. It also warms my heart to me. Because, you know... I'll just say this. I have divorced parents. I don't really see my mom that often. So seeing this just kind of... It feels... It warms the heart of this mama's boy right here. It's it's a, It inspires real emotions. Mm-hmm. And before he leaves, Kaoru gives her a record, the uh, Lullaby of Birdland record here. And the last thing she says to him is, I'm sorry, probably for not being there for him. And I did get a bit teary-eyed watching that. Just, mm. ah, it's very good. It's And it's only like one half of an episode, but it still really hits you with that emotion. And I can't help but feel like Centauro being there really helped. It did help. It's like, he couldn't have done this without Centauro. He needed that extra push from him. Because mm-hmm. Centaur's the one who kind of like motivated him to like actually go talk to his mom as soon as they see as soon as they see her, or like go find out where she worked, where she like works at like a little cabaret bar there. Yeah, and yeah, as a result, Kaoru really managed to patch things up. Yeah, and ends off on a very very good note for them. So bringing us to episode six, you don't know what love is. A song that was originally written for the uh, Abbott and Costello film "Keep 'Em Flying." <laughs> Which uh, then became a jazz standard after Miles Davis did a cover of it. And has been covered by uh, tons of people, from the likes of Louis Armstrong to John Coltrane to Ella Fitzgerald. Mmm, yes. So, second year of high school is officially underway. And here we meet Seiji Matsuoka, played by Nobuhiko Akamoto, who is in the art club with Yurika. And now, uh, I I brought up before, I'll go into it now. This is the character that Stephen Foster turned into a flaming gay stereotype. As soon as I saw him, I immediately knew this was the character. Like, it was super embarrassing, cringeworthy, and completely tone deaf of him to do that. Yes. And, um, like, he does that in the dub, but meanwhile in the Japanese version, he's so cute and moe as fuck. I love him. He he is genuinely, like, one of the cutest, like, boy characters I've seen like, in a long time. He comes off as, like, a cutesy teeny bopper, so to say. Right, right, and th- and this and this and this ties in very well with uh, what his character kind of is. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> so much so. But he's freaking adorable. Like his little like single like he's tooth that sticks thing. out. 
I like the cute way he talks. The cute way he talks. He moves around, kind of shimmy and shaking. And he's very, like, very energetic. Yeah, very eccentric, very energetic, and just, like, everyone's kind of put off by that because they can't really see, believe how much energy he has. He's like an energetic little puppy. He's almost like a Moe anime girl. <laughs> <laughs> like, a character I would totally see fit in, like, say, Love Live or something. And, of course, Stephen Foster just couldn't resist. No, like, in his head, this character translates to, like, a uh, South Park Family Guy joke. Right. And yet, really does the character a disservice, a I imagine. A major disservice, and I also... I, I avoided the dub because I I was like, no, no, I would not be able to handle that. And I felt so bad for the actor who had to play him in the dub, having to do that, get that direction. Because I, I would like to assume that he felt uncomfortable doing that, as would anyone with the right sense. Yeah, like, I, I imagine it was really embarrassing. But no, the character himself, very adorable. Very adorable, I love him. So anyway, afterwards, Centaro gets things going with Yurika, and doing it by himself. Hey, he's uh, making some moves, making some progress with her. He, yeah, he po- he uh, poses for her for some artwork that she uh, makes. Oh yeah, and at one point, uh, Kaoru accidentally walks in on them and thinks they're getting sexy. But no, he was just making some poses, you know, just like, you know, staying in place for like hours at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Wearing nothing but like a, kind of a toga sort of thing here. Yeah. <laughs> And we do see, like, Eureka's artwork here, and it's very, almost abstract in a way. Yeah, it's like an abstracted centauro that's, uh, kind of, that I believe is, uh, kind of done up with, uh, oil paint and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, makes for, makes for, she makes a very good painting of him. Yeah, that honestly does. Works really well. But, uh, in the end, it all kind of, their little date here kind of comes back to, uh, Brother June as, uh, she brings him up, and he just can't stop talking about him, and he's like, uh, I screwed it up. I put him over instead of me. Yeah. Oh, and uh, even more love stuff around here as uh, Kaoru's trying to learn how to play uh, My Favorite Things from The Sound of Music for Ritsuko here. And uh, the film did come out in 1965, so fit the perfect time frame. Yeah, it's very recent, so it would be a little bit in the zeitgeist. Um, Also, it's my uh, mom's favorite film of all time as well. Uh, It's a shame to say I have not seen it fully. Oh, really? I still have not. But if I am going to, it's going to be with my mom. Okay, uh, I have actually seen it, and I think it's very nice. It'll be very cute. Oh yeah, I've seen segments of it. I know that I know like a lot of the songs. Like they're they're unavoidable. They're really good songs. <laughs> I know. Uh, I do know that uh, my uh, grandpa, who's a big movie buff, you know, we love talking about movies with each other. Uh, he hates the movie. Oh, <laughs> really? It's too sappy and schmaltzy. And he talks about how like some of the actors also didn't really like working on it either. I like it all the more today because it's about like a, a, a cheery family fucking over Nazis. Yeah, and we got the like ripping the Nazi flag in one scene. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, love it even more. Love it makes it even better. Love seeing that gif everywhere. Like, mmm, mmm, fuck the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, another reference to the time frame around the series as uh, we get introduced to like uh, Seiji's uh, interests here. And uh, he introduces Centaro to a little British rock band, may have heard of him, may have not, uh, The Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this would have been at the height of Beatlemania, being like 19, uh, 1966. And this is where his character really starts to come into view, like, oh, this this is what he likes. Yep. Like, they, 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 these are his interests. Like, the, the rock bands, the boy bands. Rock bands, boy bands, having screaming fans everywhere, being a big star, larger-than-life star. Being chased by girls. Yeah. 
doing the hard days night thing. This is where his personality starts to come. This is where like his like real personality and goals come into view. Like, ah, this is, these are his goals. Yeah. But also, uh, being, uh, 1966, this would have actually come around the time of, uh, John Lennon's famous quote where he said, uh, they would be more popular than Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so maybe possibly relating to the whole, uh, Christianity thing in the series. Maybe a little bit. A little bit, but a little subtlety here. Yeah. But uh, Centaro comments that he couldn't really listen to the record that was given to him because uh, the screaming fans were drowning out the music. <laughs> Which was actually a real issue for the Beatles to the point where they decided to stop touring and only become a studio band. Because <laughs> they couldn't hear their music. Because, like, you know, like, imagine they're trying to sing, like, sing like uh, you know, shake it up, baby, shake it up, baby. While, like, a whole stadium of fans are going, ah! If if you look up if you look up footage of their first televised performance, the, which uh, I believe where they were performing, uh, I want to hold I want to hold your hand. Yeah. <laughs> like oh god, the screaming girls in that obnoxious, <laughs> <laughs> like kind of beautiful to see. But if you were there in person, like and you're maybe just trying to enjoy the music as it's as on its own, God, like <laughs> you'd have tinnitus by the end. It was like. Sit down, you're ruining it for everyone. <laughs> and when I touch you, I feel happy inside. It's such a feeling that I love. I can't hide, I can't hide, I can't hide. If you got that something, I think you spending like can you imagine like a full stadium like Shea Stadium like for hours on end just screaming your lungs out like oh god like, that like, even it hurts my to, throat just hearing it like can you like listen to the music like I yes I know you're trying to get Paul McCartney's attention but please like save yourself some uh health issues later on <laughs> <laughs> so Seiji tells Centaro about his dream of becoming a famous musician so he can support his family and he asked Centaro to join his band and play at the school festival, to which he agrees. And uh, this incident uh, prompts Kaoru to uh, think about his memories of, you know, being abandoned, people leaving him, you know, like his father, his mother, and all that. And he lashes out at Centaro, thinking that he's abandoning him, too. And just, oh, no. Oh, Kaoru, why? Mm. <laughs> so we're at the halfway point of the show, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with the rest of Kids on the Slope. In the meantime, enjoy the music. 
enjoy a nice little bit of jazz here yourself. Rest of Kids on the Slope with episode 7, Now's the Time, by Charlie Parker's Reboppers, which includes himself, Miles Davis on trumpet, Dizzy Gillespie or Sidney Kakim on piano, and Curly Russell on bass, and Max Roach on drums. And this episode here, this is a big episode. And also, it's school festival time! <laughs> and also, also, uh, things are really super awkward between Kaoru and Sentaro, uh, Pretty uh, distant now after the whole thing with Seiji. Yeah, makes things kind of awkward. As uh, Centaur's now just focusing on practicing with him and his band for the festival. And uh, it's been a while. Uh, let's actually check on uh, Brother June as uh, Ritsuko's dad found him uh, at a bar the other night and now he's staying over in the basement. And man, he looks like shit. Yeah, like he hasn't slept, he hasn't shaved. His hair's longer than usual. Oof. And uh, Yurika actually sees him and like runs off, just can't even bear the sight of him. And then Zentaro thinks that he did something to upset her and actually decks Brother June. Yeah. <laughs> and now, like, he's got some baggage to deal with, not only, like, possibly messing up his relationship with Kaoru, now he, like, decked, like, his big brother here. It's 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 all kind of falling apart for everyone. Well, for what it's worth, June kind of looks like he's miles away in his head. No, he's, uh, yeah, lights are on, but no one's home kind of thing. Yeah. 
Uh, the one scene I really want to point out here is the scene where uh, Sentaro fills out the band form for the festival in front of Kaoru, and it's kind of rough, where they're just both carrying all this baggage, and you can tell they want to talk to neither of them can find the words to say. Yeah. Like, just making kind of almost awkward small talk where Sentaro's writing something, and he's like, hey, if you're going to write in Katakana, you got to write it this way, or it's going to be, or it's, your group's going to be called The Olympus instead of The Olympus. Mm-hmm. And the day of the festival arrives, and... Get a load of Seiji's band with their Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club outfits here. <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't look flattering in those costumes. No, like not even the Beatles look flattering in those outfits. Ugh. Also, Lonely Hearts Club, yeah, kind of fitting here. Uh, yeah, I kind of like that. Uh, what do you think of their little Beatles tribute here? I mean, it sounds it sounds alright, but it's clearly ripping off the Beatles. Yeah, it's... They're, they're really trying to, like, do their shtick here. Mm-hmm. But it, it is over with the, with the people in the audience, you know. They are screaming. Yeah, the girls are screaming their asses off. Mm-hmm. They love it. They're probably all like, Ah, oh, is that the music of John Lennon? Oh, my God! And Centauro, he's playing, but he looks out of place on that stage. He's kind of an... In, auto- that, in that costume. He's kind of an autopilot here. Yeah. And uh, then we get uh, the biggest scene in the show, in my opinion, here. Because there turns out to be pro- electrical problems, yep. and their electric instrument, and the band's electric instruments are not playing. Nope, amps go down, so yeah, no uh, sound, no Seiji singing, no uh, electric guitars, no nothing of the sort. So uh, while they're trying to fix it, uh, Kaoru overhears Sentaro talking about why he joined up with Seiji's band, how, you know, he admired his goal of, like, wanting to become a big star to help his family in the future. And that's why he joined in. But he said uh, he, this is only going to be a one-time deal because jazz is more up his alley. And he's keeping his important partner waiting. So in order to keep the crowd from leaving, keep them occupied for a bit, Kaoru gets on the piano, starts playing. And then Sentaro hears this, joins in. So we start off a little bit of uh, my favorite things and everything. It starts building and building and building until we get to this huge medley, which I will splice you in.
it's worth splicing in because this right here, it's 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 like Beck's finest performance, you know. Like it's it's that performance that really cements these two in their relationship. It's their finest hour, and holy shit, it's so good. They just attack their instruments here. They bring the house down. <laughs> You've even got, like, these gorgeous scenes, like, cut in between where, like, students are, like, <laughs> they have, like, rotoscoped movements as they're, like, telling everyone, you gotta come see this. Come on, come on, these guys are playing in the auditorium. Kaoru and Sentaro are playing. You gotta come hear this. They're bringing the house down. And just, through no dialogue between the two of them, they're just perfectly in sync. Because that's how jazz works. Oh, like, this. Mmm. So good. And, like, my favorite moment where, like, it's starting to build up, build up, build up, and then... Brief pause, and you just hear. Ah, just as soon as it goes into moan, and I'm just like, yes, it's so good. Fuck. Oh, like ah, it's such a markout moment. The energy and their enthusiasm, like this right here, like this performance right here. This is why I love jazz. This improvisation, this creativity, like, expressed between these two characters, it's, this is the exact feeling that I love in jazz. What it can do for people. Like, oh, man. And this is a scene that, like, I always find myself going back to, like, every few months or so. Just, I have it saved up my YouTube favorites, and I just pull it up, and I just go, yeah. Oh. Yeah. It is smooth. It is swinging. And just, uh, it just even brings uh, Ritsuko to tears when it gets to, like, my prince, someday my prince will come in the middle of it, too. <sighs> and just everyone just loved it. You know, Yurika starts a big round of applause for everyone. And it's just, it's so perfect, so well-earned, bringing them back together after their little tiff. It's amazing. A beautiful moment. So afterwards, this brings us to episode eight, These Foolish Things, which is by uh, Jack Strachey and uh, Eric Mankiewicz. And so, uh, what's going on with June? As, uh, let's, uh, let's get into this here. Yeah, this, this requires a bit of context. So, he turns out he got involved with the Zen Kyoto student movement. Care to explain? Well, it's, it's actually hard for me to explain, because it was a, it was a movement that took place, it was, it was kind of taking off, but, like, really took off in, like, 1968 and 1969, where, uh, lots of, uh, university, lots of, uh, left-wing university students in Japan at the time were protesting about a lot of stuff. Uh, in fact, from what I've read, one of the weaknesses of the movement is that, like, the reasons were very kind of scattershot, as lots of different cells were protesting different things from, like, really high tuition, like, like, prohibitive tuitions that were keeping students out, uh, quite a few, like, left-wing reasons as well. There was also some, like, existentialism, lots of philosophy behind it as well. Uh, some Japanese philosophers that were kind of inspiring students to go out and protest for a wide variety of reasons and stuff. But yeah, it was, it was a move, but yeah, it was a movement that broke off from the larger communist party in Japan, which, and kind of went off to become its own thing. And... I like which is just funny to me because like it's it's like because like what's the joke from Disco Elysium? <laughs> You'll discuss the monumental world historical task that lies before you. You'll engage in rigorous and spirited debates about Mazovian theory and practice. But mostly you'll probably complain about other communists. Not at all. Complaining about other communists 
is one of the most important parts of being a communist. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's 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 a that's that's a funny little job there. <laughs> Straight from a uh, disco Elysium. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, the communist track. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like I was just reminded of that little joke there about it. <laughs> yeah, like I, I really cannot explain the entire movement here, but um, like this is the kind of thing that you kind of it did. Get... It did lead to some like very violent uh, clashes with police at the time. Mm-hmm. Like uh, to really fully understand this, this is the kind of thing that you kind of it kind of need like a bit of a semester in like university or something like that to kind of really understand the whole thing the students wearing the helmets there in particular was like a very notable mm-hmm. um like visual factor to it as well like an article of clothing that was uh, worn by them at the time but uh yeah very big protests very violent protests and yeah jun apparently got kind of uh, swept up in that yeah he uh inadvertently kind of became uh, the voice of a movement and uh Seeing the results of that kind of left him traumatized because uh, people are following his his words, like what he said, end up getting hurt. Like uh, one friend he met, like uh, ended up like really injuring his hands to the point where like he can't play a saxophone anymore. He's got his hands bashed to pieces. Yeah, and like even so, he's still following June's words to like keep the protests going, keep fighting the good fight. And June's just like, what have I done? Like he yeah, he just couldn't handle the pressure. Like this is like far bigger than anything he can handle. Like he, he probably supports their like movement and like their beliefs, but it's just like he can't do, he can't do it. Yeah. And also like uh, this kind of affected a lot of his uh, relationship with uh, Yurika because yeah they definitely had a thing going on. They kind of hooked up after that Christmas gig, but because of this whole situation with the uh, student movement, he's been ghosting her and just avoiding her because he doesn't want like her to get her being involved with him. Yeah. Left a bad impression with his family because, like, his family just soon disowned him for, like, being a part of these protests and everything like that. So that's why he's just kind of out and about. He dropped out of college and now he's just, like, staying in uh, the basement. In a really rough spot. Yeah, like, he's just left traumatized and just afraid of getting close to people. And uh, things come to, like, a major boiling point in the whole uh, love triangle between, like, these two and Centauro. He finds out, like, he about this. He goes to where Brother June is. He opens the door and he sees Yurika there, and he's like, son of a bitch. <laughs> and just runs off. Yeah. Crying. He just, ah. It, he's absolutely crushed by this whole thing. And then when uh, Sentaru tells Kaoru about this, uh, he tells him, like, uh, well, you should be more aware that there's someone else who likes you, you know? Maybe someone you've known since you were little. And he's, of course, talking about Richan, but Kaoru doesn't know that she's into him, not Sentaro. Mm, yeah, she's starting to come around she's to him. She's starting to come around a bit more. Yeah. But he he doesn't get it. Like, he can't really see it. But, like, again, they're both teenagers. Like, noticing these kind of hints, it's just kind of like, can't see the forest through the trees here. Yeah. And I'm, just, I'm watching this. I'm just like, okay, everyone, we need to have a team meeting. Sit down and one by one say who you like. Just to <laughs> keep things, keep things yeah. easier, you know? The bringing us to episode 9, Love Me or Leave Me, by uh, Walter Donaldson and Gus Kahn for the musical comedy, Whoopee! Okay, so actually, let's uh, sit down and talk about who we like here. As uh, Centaur realizes that Kaoru was talking about Ritsuko being in love with him, and he uh, talks to her to tell her that he's sorry for not noticing, but then she laughs and reveals that uh, she's not into him like that. Like, they're basically family, you know, kissing you is like I'm kissing my brother. 
And so that's all, that's all cleared up with them. Resolved. Resolved. Like, it's kind of implied that she did kind of have a thing for him when they were little kids, but it was, it's probably more like a little kid kind of crush, you know, like, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to marry you and we're going to have a family, that sort of thing. But they're actually a little bit more older and mature to actually make those decisions. Yeah. And it's around this time we actually close the book on uh, Jun and Yuriko's relationship here. As uh, Junichi accepts an uh, invitation from his uh, comrades in Tokyo to start a publishing company together. And he says his goodbyes to Sentaro and Kaoru. And he does so in the only way someone like him could with one final jam. And uh, I like how uh, it turns into a bit of a competition between him and Sentaro here. Where they're just trying to like outdo each other. Yeah, they're both competing off of each other. <laughs> Kind of getting some uh, whiplash vibes to this, you know, my fucking tempo son boy. Yeah, <laughs> you really do get yeah. those kind of vibes from it. Just really aggressive playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jun does win out in the end. Centaro can't keep up with him, but they're back on good terms in there. And they kind of forgive each other for the little uh, punch from earlier. Yeah. And Jun boards a train to depart from Kyushu. And uh, Yurika asks to join him, but he says no. And then Yurika's parents try to get her to come back because uh, while this was all going on, they heard about her relationship with Jun and they're saying like, no, you can't associate with this guy. This guy is kind of a kind of a criminal. You know, he's with that student movement. You know, be with our uh, high class friends here. Even like fucking rudely like take her to a gynecologist like in case like because they think she like got knocked up yeah. or something. Yeah, like, what, what was the that? F- what the fuck? Jesus. As the train is departing, Jun pulls in Yurika and they both board the train at the very last moment, and they're gonna be in this together. It's a really romantic moment. Like, pulling someone from, like, a train platform onto you as it's leaving, it's 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 been done in, like, a lot of, like, media, but it's, like, it's a grand romantic moment. It goes really far here. Like, I can't live without you, come with me, leave this life, we'll run off together. And that's pretty much it for Brother Jin and Yurika for... Pretty much the rest of the series here. Yeah, that's their story done. Yeah, and like, and we do find out that they do live happily together. And afterwards, Kaoru finds a pair of gloves that uh, Ritsuko knitted for him. And yeah, she's now starting to make the moves here. Yeah. Yeah, she's been uh, knitting it, knitting a gift for him throughout the entirety uh, around this time here. And uh, at one point, throws it away, but then goes back to get it because she's still really conflicted about her feelings with Kaoru, but ultimately decides that no... I do actually like this guy, so here's a nice gift for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring us to episode 10, In a Sentimental Mood by Duke Ellington and Manny Kurtz. So, uh, despite getting the gloves from Ritsuko, uh, Kaoru doesn't pursue her out of fear of being rejected again. So, but it's like, at this point, you know, it's like, who's more dense when it comes to girls, Kaoru or Koyuki? Mm, honestly, they've both had, like, a spotty track record yeah. this far. <laughs> but, like I mentioned before, it's about as frustrating as the stuff with uh, Koyuki and Maho, but I mean that in the best possible way, because it leads to such good storytelling and such, you know, grade-A drama. And, you know, it gives me, like, uh, the right reactions, good or bad. And in the end, the two finally open up about their feelings towards each other. And it's a really great scene, too, where, like, he's sick in bed with a cold, and Ritsuko goes to see him, and then she leaves, and he's just all like, no, I gotta run after her, even though he's, like, sick as a dog. Right, fighting the common cold to get to her. And it's like, it's kind of perfect for his character here, too, where, like, he tries to, like, kiss her, and he's like, wait, I'll give you my cold, and she's like, I don't mind. <laughs> and, and then, like, perfect moment here where, like, he wants to do something, 
but he can. His he loses the strength and slumps over. His body won't let him to do something. Like, that's pretty much his whole character where, like, his mind says one thing, but his body says another. Give him credit. He was sick as a dog, and yet he still powered through he it. He fucking tried. Yeah, he tried. Like, that, for his character, that means a lot. Well, just runs up to her, like, give you some sugar, baby, like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> just collapses on the front lawn. Yeah. <laughs> So, sometime later, Kaoru and Sentaru are challenged by Seiji to perform at the upcoming school festival. Ah, oh, yeah, concert of combat, baby! However, uh, stuff's going on with Sentaru here as he uh, tries to run away from home when he learns that his adopted father is coming back. And it's implied here that uh, didn't really have the best relationship up to this point. Mm, yeah. And also kind of implying that he uh, used to be kind of a bit of a mean drunk. Yeah. And uh, there's also a lot of stuff you can apply here where Centaro feels that uh, because he's adopted, you know, his father here won't accept him because he's not technically part of the family. Yeah. All goes back to the whole thing where, like, he feels he doesn't belong even though we see that he does. Right, exactly. Like, it's only natural near the end of the series that uh, we start to come back to these feelings again. Right, right. And also he can kind of feel that because his own biological father disowned him, he can't really allow him to get close to, like, any other father figure. Right, it's like hard for him to accept a gift from him as well. You know, like what what if that happens again? What if he stops loving me? Like what I can't deal with that anymore. Like what'll happen if that happens again? So this leads us to episode eleven, Left Alone, which is an album by Mal Waldron. As uh, we're on the home stretch here, as after some uh, pressuring from Kalru, Centaro ultimately decides not to run away from home. And even better, when his dad comes home, he gives him a present showing that he does see Centaro as his flesh and blood son because he says, you know. That's what a father does to his son. Gives him gifts. Yeah. And it's a really nice fountain pen here. Very, uh, kind of a mature gift for Centaro here, but uh, it's, it's still a very nice gesture. Uh, some of the kids do, jo- yeah, it is joked a bit that, like, he's not going to have much of a use for it yeah. as a jazz player. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe maybe he can, like, uh, get, like, a dress shirt with a pocket protector and kind of wear that there. Hey, that'd be smooth. You know, you're a jazz musician, you're, you're loose, but you're also very intelligent. <laughs> And uh, since uh, Brother June's out of the picture here, our quartet's now down to a trio. That is, until they bring in Ritsuko to be their singer. And we do get her singing uh, My Favorite Things here, which is really, really cute. Yeah, her voice actress uh, sings a very good rendition of it. Yeah, I was seeing a little bit of it. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kittens and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Green colored ponies and crisp apple strudels. Doorbirds and slavers and schnitzel with noodles. Might kids that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my the nice moment after uh, her singing where they where all three of them are just kind of laying around and they both ask each other what their favorite things are even at one point Centaro singing his favorite things to like the tune of the song 
it's a it's a very it's a very important moment as you really begin to pull back and see really how far the characters have come and uh Kaoru, his favorite thing is uh that moment right there just all three of them being together so the night before the festival after practice Sentaro leaves to go give Kaoru some sheet music he forgot but uh, unfortunately, he gets into an accident while riding a scooter. Yeah, hit by a car. Yeah. I didn't see that coming. No, I didn't even see that coming when I first saw that. I mean, he certainly didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you should see the other guy. <laughs> this actually leads to like a really, I think a really well done reveal here where like you think something really bad happened to Centaur here. He's not seen at all. And then like Ritsuko gets the message that he's in the hospital. There was an accident. Kaoru goes running after him. He sees Centaro's family just, like, upset, crying and everything. And they're like, like, uh, it's head trauma. Probably not going to wake up. And then and he's like, no, Centaro's tougher than that. And they're like, wait, Centaro? No, we're talking about uh, our daughter, Sachiko, because she was there with him. Yeah, and turns out Centa- on the bike. And if you watch the scene earlier, you can actually see a little uh, tuft of hair behind Centauro. Yeah, she, she was clearly sitting behind him on the bike. Yeah, so it's kind of a blinking you kind of thing. But yeah, Centauro got away with only like minor injuries, you know, maybe a broken arm, that sort of thing. But relatively safe. But uh, Sachiko, she's in, in a coma at the moment. It's It really kind of messes with him a bit. And the scene on the roof between the two of them is really well done. Where, like, it calls back to, like, the moment where they first met, and he's like, oh, I see an angel. Hey, if you can do one thing for me, take me, not Sachiko. But it's a lot more, like, emotionally, like, raw, and just, like, really, like, sad. You know, Centaro's trying to keep up a good face in front of Kaoru, and then Kaoru just... And he's, like, clearly blaming himself for the accident as well. Yeah. Like, really starting to believe that, like, God, am, like, am I just going to, like, bring pain to, like, everyone I love in life? Mm-hmm. Like, this is why he can't really allow himself to get close to people. And then a really good moment where Kaoru just stops him from talking, just brings him in, puts his head in his chest, and he's like, I can't see you, you can't see me, go ahead and cry. And just balls it, and they just ball their eyes out. It's just, ah, it's so, mm, so good. Can you see now why people say this is a really gay anime? Oh, very gay. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't bring that up before, but, like, that is a very important factor to, like, this series. And this is not, like, Stephen Foster's stereotypical gay. This is, like... This is all, like, subtextual. Subtextual, very wholesome, very, like, almost romantic in a way, kind of gay. Right, right. Like, canonically, the, the two characters, like, the two characters, Kaoru and Centauro, they're, like, it is a platonic, it is a platonic relationship, canonically, but, like, they're so emotionally, like, the way that they're emotionally forward with each other, and they're very, like, close physically with each other, it, it's led to, it's, it's led to a lot of people, to, like, see, like, a lot of, like, gay subtext between them. And you really do see it in there. Oh, definitely. Like, from the moment they first met up until, like, the scene like this, and in many other scenes before, there's a lot of that. Yes, yes. And it's... It's honestly kind of beautiful, <laughs> their relationship. It really is. Like, you really can kind of see it, like, both ways. Mm-hmm. And so, thankfully, uh, Sachiko actually regains consciousness and looks to make a full recovery, but Sentaro is nowhere to be found. Now he's in a way. And he left his uh, rosaries behind just like his mother did. Just hangs it on the doorknob and just... He's gone. Oh, Sentaro! And, like, we get these scenes where, like, Ritsuko's just broken up about it, and she's like, will he come back? And Kaoru's trying to keep up a good front for just like 
I'm sure he'll come back. He'll never leave us like that. He'll spring up whenever we least expect it, because that's how Centaur rolls. But he, like, ultimately resigns himself. Like, he talks to uh, Ritsuko's father, and he's like, he's never coming back. He's gone forever. While he sits at his drum set in the basement. God. He's like, ah. And, uh, you know, like, bringing up Beck again. Kind of similar to, like, how that, how the, how the end of that series went. Right, right, with, like, the, the like the breakup and stuff. Mm-hmm, yeah, with uh, Koiki and Ryusuke. Mm-hmm. So, let's close things out with episode 12, All Blues, song by Miles Davis. Life goes on without Centaro, and before we know it, Kaoru and Ritsuko have graduated from high school, and just, but just, everything's just so empty without him. And, uh, you know, fitting that he's a drummer, you know, drummers tend to be the glue that keep most bands together, but without one, things just completely fall apart. Mm-hmm. And even Ritsuko and Kaoru start to drift apart a bit without Centaur around. Even Kaoru screws up at one point, trying to put the moves on Ritsuko. And he says that, like... Like, he callously says that, like, oh, now that Centauro is out of the way, like, like I can have you all to myself. Like, like a very callous thing to say about Centauro there. Not a good thing to say. Ritsuko just pushes him away and is like, how could you talk like that about him? Like, even if you are joking, you shouldn't say that, especially in front of me. Like, how do you think I would feel? Like, really strains things between the two. Yeah, just... And and at that moment, Kaoru just, like, kind of resigns himself, saying, like, well, I screwed up our relationship, so uh, I'm going to college to Tokyo. I'm probably never going to see each other again. And then he's gone. He's gone. Though they do have one final moment between each other where, like, after graduation, he's leaving, and he tries to go talk to her one more time, but she's not trying to see him, so he goes outside of the store... Looks up to her room and just shouts out how he really feels about her, how he gave her, gave him the confidence to kind of, like, make, be, like, who he can really be, you know, try to make all these moves that he's made throughout his entire high school life. He owes everything to her. And that actually leads her to, like, coming to see him off while he's leaving. And, uh, unfortunately, he doesn't pull up. Brother June and pulls her along. But uh, they do share one final glance before he leaves. Very bittersweet ending to their relationship here. Uh, yeah. And eight years pass. Yeah, eight years later, and uh, Kaoru, he's not working as a doctor. Well, you know, doing well for himself. And he's largely moved on from things until one day he happens to bump into Yurika. And uh, speaking of bumps, uh, she's sporting a baby bump. <laughs> and not only that, June's the father. Hey, all right. Hey, nice. Seems like, seems like their life is really pulled together. I noticed that she wasn't wearing a wedding ring, so they're probably not married, but... I can totally believe that. June's that kind of guy who wouldn't... Who probably doesn't believe in marriage. Right, right. Because, like, who, who wants to bother with the family situation there? Yeah, especially that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no uh, drive through weddings in Japan, I'm assuming. Yeah, they they, 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 they don't need marriage. No. <laughs> they have each other. And uh, oh, also doing great is uh, Seiji, as we see on a TV. He actually achieved his goal, and he's a big star now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, and, like, uh, Kaoru's co-workers all like, Oh, you know this guy? Oh, my, uh... One of, my, one of my family members actually is really into him. Do you think he can get me an autograph? Oh, nice. He accomplished his dream. It's so sweet. <laughs> uh, anyway, Yurika shows Kaoru a photo from a friend's wedding that she and uh, June attended. And in that photo is none other than Centauro. So Kaoru travels to the church in the photo where he learns that Centauro is working as a priest in training. It's also worth noting that this is, like, an actual church he's working into, uh, Kuroshima Church. Like, it's an actual place you can visit. Yeah. I think it's, okay, according to the website, I think it's, like, condemned right now. Like, you can't enter into it, but, like, it's still, like, preserved, you know? 
honestly, a pretty, pretty gorgeous church, actually, that was built in, like, 1902, Romanesque style. Oh, yeah. I've actually got uh, some, like, actual exterior pictures here. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah, really, yeah. Go- really wow. gorgeous place. Good windows. Kind of up on a hill a little bit. Mm-hmm. Very pretty, actually. Up on a slope? <laughs> up on a slope, yes. <laughs> I mean, God, I, I gotta give Catholics credit. They've they've always known how to build churches. You know, they know how to make a nice uh, house for Jesus. They, they know how to make a big building that illustrates how big God is and how small you are. And uh, <laughs> they should uh, definitely fear fe- be fearful. You know, fear the vengeful God and loving God. That That is literally the design idea behind almost every church in existence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They do make for pretty buildings, though. Yeah, and very nice stained glass windows. Yes, very nice. The two here reunite, you know, Centaro's uh, playing with some kids, you know, priest in training. Then uh, he hears in the distance an organ, hears a familiar tune, hears the opening chords, the moaning. He's like, I knew I'd see him again. He, he literally reacts like, I've been waiting this day. <laughs> <laughs> I've waited eight years to play moaning with you once more. Then he walks up to the church. Kaoru notices him. They don't say a word of dialogue to each other, and then Sentaro just walks over to a, a drum set that he did put in the church. <laughs> <laughs> just sits down, and the two just start jamming out. And I'll splicing it.
thank God, this scene, like... Now this is how you close out your series. Just, about, like, two friends who bond over jazz. And I love the shots where it's, like, you get one shot where it's, like, a big wide shot of the church where, like, on one side it's Kalru and the other side it's Centaro, but in between those shots, it's, like, shot in a way where it's, like, they're almost, like, right next to each other. Yes. Yes. It's Visually, it's conveyed very well, like, this reunion. And I love the kids that Centaro was playing with, like, come in, and they start listening to the music, too, and they're all clapping along, going, like, yeah, it's fun. Very reminiscent of their uh, previous finest moment at the uh, second year festival. Oh, this is... <laughs> this is so good. Just, And I love at the end where, like, uh, you know, the priest comes in going, like, hey, what are you doing here? And then they run right out like they were kids again. They run down the slope while the opening plays over this scene. And near the bottom, they reunite with Ritsuko, holding a letter from Yurika telling her where she can find her two favorite boys. Curtain down. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I honestly cried at the end of the scene here. Oh. I was just so moved and blown away by it. Such a stellar series. An amazing series. So, yeah. Final thoughts here? Final thoughts? Um, I have heard some reviewers reviewed, refer to Kids on the Slope as a real transitional series for Watanabe. Like, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a bit of an experiment for him compared to what he has done in the past. And God, I believe this experiment in, paid off incredibly well. Like, everything he has... All the skills he developed before really have, like, entered into, like, a new paradigm with Kids on the Slope. It really was a big, like, moment of change for him. Where it's like, he, he could do subdued... He could do subdued stuff. He could do, uh, like, a smaller series looking more at, uh, these, like, smaller interconnected relationships... Uh, like, that are set, like, he can actually write a series set within, like, a very specific, like, real time in the yeah, world. Yeah, and, like, a very real series, because you look at his other works, like... Like, it's by far his, I, I believe it's by far his most grounded series. Oh, 100%, because you look at Bebop, it's, like, space adventures, or Samurai Champloo, hip-hop in, like, Edo period Japan, or space dandy, space adventures with comedy flair. But this is Watanabe pulling back and really zeroing in on... Not just, like, characters, but also, like, his love of music as well. His love of jazz. Like, this this series more than even Cowboy Bebop, I, I believe, even more than Samurai Champloo at this time, really epitomized, was re really was kind of like a thesis statement on his love of, like, music. It really comes through well in the series. It, com it comes through well in the, the characters, their relationships, how they relate to the world, how they, like, the, the kind of solace they find in jazz music, and, god, it overall makes for just such a solid experience. Like, the only negative thing I have to say about it is that, is just that, like, in parts, it feels like they skip uh, quite a bit. Yeah, but, like, it kind of calls back to, like, what he said, where, like, he felt this could have been a 15 or 16 episode series, but... Right, so some, some events do feel a little, like, a little too compressed. But, like, it all still comes through extremely well in the end. It's a very, like, well-realized vision. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, talking about earlier how, like, for the original manga, it felt like a personal story for Kodama. Like, with the love of music and these characters and stuff, it also kind of felt very personal to Watanabe, too. I, I feel like he did a really good, respectful job of adapting that series verse. Oh, 100%. Like, and it shows that Watanabe, like, he can pretty much do it all. Not only do his own original ideas, but he can also, like, take other people's works and like really 
give it life and bring it to, like, your TV screens as an anime. I know, that's what's even more incredible. Like, his only, his first adaption. First and only at this point. Like, holy crap. Because, like, after this, he went to work on Space Dandy. Right, and right. And Terran Resonance. Yeah, exactly. So, God, like, such, such, yeah, a very important, like, mid, like, mid-career point for Watanabe. Absolutely knocked out of the park. Yeah, like, seven years after he did Blue. Yeah, like, really impressive. Because, like, after he did this... That guy can take as long of a hiatus as he ever wants, and he still puts out incredible work. Yeah, like, when you really think about it, this kind of this series kind of really brought him back into, like, directing anime, because he did this, he did Terran Resonance, he did Space Dandy, and then after that he did Carolyn Tuesday. It's like, it, this, like, he's kind of on a roll as of late, ever since this series. He really is! He really is. Uh, I've also heard some reviewers compare this that, uh, it's, it's... Again, going hand-in-hand, hand, the LGBT themes here, mm -hmm. and, like, the subtext, a lot better than, like, how he portrayed that kind of subject matter in the pa in past series, mm -hmm. where gay characters would be, like, treated, would be more likely treated as a joke. And, like, something that he would, like, he would keep when he goes on to work on some and of the And he shows. would continue to improve on that, yeah. too! Like, yeah, he, he, it showed that he was actually kind of conscious of that. Which we will get into next month, but, like, yeah. Like, he, he's... He kept that going, and it's like, I really admire him for that. Like, if you're looking at the entirety of Watanabe's career, this is a this is a series you absolutely cannot rule out. Because it really was a big transitory moment for him. Yeah, like, when I first watched this show, like, I didn't actually know at first that this was Watanabe. Until, like, I looked it up and I was just like, oh, he did this? And then, like, as soon as I started, once I realized that, I'm just like, it's starting to click, and it's like, yes, this is... It feels, all comes together. You know, despite hearing a terrible dub, it's like, I've, I'm feeling all of the Watanabe goodness within this series here. Yeah. And, yeah, just, this series is just so fantastic. Like, even better than I remembered, like, you know, Foster Dub notwithstanding, you know, like, even then, like, I was still blown away by this. Like, even saying, like, how I cried at the end of the ending. It's so fantastically well done. And, you know, yeah, back-to-back -back shows with this and back with, like, these kind of coming-of-age stories and, like, these, like, interpersonal character dramas that are done so well, frustrating in the right way, and just, in the end, still very hopeful and leaves you, like, with such good feelings. And also, of course, music, 100% bang on. Absolutely phenomenal jazz music in the series. Like, like really hit it out of the park. Yoko Kano, like, she can do no wrong when it comes to music. Absolutely. Like, even though she says she doesn't like jazz... She can deliver she jazz! She can deliver it. <laughs> God, she's like Double D and like Ed and Eddie. Yeah. Like, hates, hates like, uh, like, like Hawaiian, hates like the, uh, lap guitar, but like, can absolutely shred yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's at the recording booth, she's like, uh, these instruments are so annoying. <laughs> just nails it. Right. Just blows it away. And beautifully animated with the, uh, rotoscope mocapping with the performances. I know, you, like, honestly, honestly, very commendable series in terms of animation quality. Like, they did not, they did not skimp out at no. all. and, like, they were, like, implored to, like, to save money and save time, but they were like, no, we need to get this right. Like, even if it takes, like, half of the production, we need to get this animation right and really get it over with fans. All the backgrounds, just lovingly rendered, like, lovingly drawn from real actual environments from, like, the area. Like, this, mm, I wish, like, wish most anime had this kind of quality. Yeah, like, and, like, with an adaptation, no less. Like, you know, most anime nowadays is adaptations, but, like, even then, you could still do great works with stuff, with stuff like this. Yes, absolutely. Like, I can't say enough good things about Kids on the Slope. Like, highly, highly, highly recommended to anyone who loves anime, loves music, loves jazz music, loves Watanabe. 
go out of your way to see this if you haven't, and also avoid the dub at all costs. Only 12 episodes, too. Very easy to digest. Oh, you can knock it out in, like, a day if you want to. Yeah, like, like despite, like, any small gripes with, like, the, like, adaption process, all still very, a very tightly, like, paced series. Very much so. Very much. So I highly recommend Kids on the Slope. I'm so glad I finally got to this. And fuck Stephen Foster for not having respect for this. <laughs> yes. Though I'd rather not, like, uh, end off with, with uh, Stephen Foster as the final note. Mm -hmm. Like, please, please watch Kids on the Slope. It's a it's a very lovingly done series. Do yourselves a favor. It's available on Crunchyroll, Verve, High Dive, wherever you can find it. Buy the Blu-rays. Just go watch it. You don't want to miss out on this tune. Thank you all for listening. I've been your host, Mikey, and you can find me at my social medias at MikeyShoda on Twitter, MikeyShoda.tumblr.com, and MikeyShoda on the gram. And where can we find you, Ryan? You can find me at 2Bits on Twitter and WolfishGrin on Tumblr. And follow AnimeBayBay on Twitter at Anime underscore Bebe. That's Anime underscore B-A-Y, a B-A-Y. And also follow the show AnimeBayBay.podbean.com, iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. And also, now that the uh, Forbidden Door has been opened, uh, definitely look forward to possibly seeing us uh, cover up anime in the original Japanese again in the future. It might be situational. It might be situ situational. It might be it might be as the situation goes, because we do like reviewing dubs. Yep. And so yeah, if it's say a show that just doesn't have a dub, definitely look forward to to something like that. And uh trust me when I say I had have some shows in mind that I've been waiting to possibly get dubbed. But uh, you know, now that we've opened the store, I can't really wait any longer, so uh potentially look forward to those sometime in the future. Stay tuned. Uh, there's some good ones. Yeah, New Horizons for everyone here. On the next episode of Summer Music, uh, everything comes to a close. We've reached our uh, final act of our big uh, summer concert here. And uh, what a way to go out, as the final anime here is actually the reason why I wanted to do Summer Music in the first place. This is the show that gave me the idea to do a music-themed anime summer. So, we keep the Watanabe train rolling here as we're talking all about Carol and Tuesday. Another series I missed that I didn't watch that I have not watched yet. And another series that I feel is right up your alley. I know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Uh, but uh, but I am genuinely I am I'm just as excited to watch this one as I was Kids on the Slope. And I kind of feel this the timing couldn't be perfect with like how we did this summer where like you know we did Beck we did Kids on the Slope. I kind of feel like uh, Carol and Tuesday is kind of like takes all the good parts from both shows and kind of combines it into one. Oh, you're getting me excited and already. A bit of the character relationships, the drama, the Watanabe, the music scene at the time and everything like that. A lot of uh, stuff relating to like the culture around the time and stuff. So yeah, look forward to that. Oh, you're getting me so anticipated. But until then... Stay safe out there, wash your hands, wear a fucking mask if you're unvaccinated, even if you are vaccinated, and if you're not vaccinated, go get fucking vaccinated, it's FDA approved now, and Black Lives Matter, trans rights are human rights, stop Asian hate, and this has been Anime, baby! Kago
Date with Billy Holiday. <laughs> 